on All Your Things Are Gone this week is Alex Garcia Riviera. I'm sure everyone knows who he is, what he's done. I can't list all the bands he's been in, but uh, Piebald, most notably American Nightmare. He was in a great band called Blood Horse, who I really liked back in the day. Um, but now he's more well-known for his uh, recording, engineering, uh, mixing at uh, Mystic Valley. And uh, a lot of people have really touted his ability to get the best performance out of people in such a great small little studio in the middle of the city. Um, all to tape, which from my standpoint, I've recorded a tape a couple times and uh, it's not easy. And especially in this day and age when everyone's doing it, uh, obviously, to a computer. Uh, doing it to tape takes a lot of practice, uh, a lot of know-how, a lot of patience. So uh, this is a long one. Enjoy it. I did. Uh, I think he did as well. He got into it. And uh, I was happy to talk to him. I'm, uh, thankfully, he came by. This is all your things are gone. <laughs> no, I think I've been playing bands that people know for... You know, 30 years or something. Right. You're certainly someone that people know. You have a presence uh, on those records. You've been on a shit ton of bands. It's ridiculous how many bands you've been in. I know. Most people don't even know. Like, because <laughs> some people, they'll know, like, a little window of, like, where I was for three or four years. And right. And they think of me as, like, that person or whatever. So is American Nightmare, like, the most popular, you'd say? Um, yeah, nowadays. And yeah. plus, I've been in that band longer than anything at this point, so... Is it still going on? Yeah. 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 And some people don't even know that. Like, we yeah. started playing again in 2011. Is this running? Oh, yeah, we're going. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> yeah, we, we started playing again in uh, 2011. Oh, cool. And uh, we just... Played a couple of shows, and then, I mean, we're all friends. We all love each other, so we just kind of kept doing it because mm -hmm. people wanted to see it. Yeah. And then uh, it ended up happening for a few years, and we started getting kind of curious about making new music. So we wrote some songs, and the whole thought process was, we'll make some songs, and... If they're not good enough or if we don't like them, mm -hmm. then we'll just not even acknowledge it ever happened. You know what I mean? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we liked how they turned out. Cool. So we put them out. Record came out last year. Yeah. And we did a tour from that album. I listened to some of it yesterday. Oh, cool. Cool. Um, I, I know that first one, and I know... The one under the different year, the first name better. Right. And I was I was working at Saugus Newberry Comics, and that fucking record. So many people were into that record. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I loved it. Is that one of the more stupid questions to get? When it went on with the name change, I remember it being a big fucking deal. Yeah, not anymore. No. Because everyone kind of knows the deal already with that. Yeah, I figured. But um, I don't know. When we started playing again, we just played as American Nightmare and yeah. didn't even consider it. Where's, where's the other band now? That <laughs> I have no idea, but and it turns out they didn't even follow through with copywriting it anymore. Sure. So like, I believe it. Now, you know, Wes did some like work and now the name is not harsh, but... <laughs> really? <no. laughs> That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so why did you guys like, why did you guys take a break 
kids? Um, I mean, it wasn't life. really that we took a break. Just the band disintegrated. Mm. It was just so much going on. Personally, we were touring a lot. I mean, we were a full-time band back then. You guys have a lot of, a lot of members, it seems. Yeah. Um, we did up until I joined the band. Yeah. Um, it's been the same members since then. Um, we did have a lineup change with our guitarist, uh, who, I don't know, things got kind of weird. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't really talk about it. That's right. <laughs> we don't need um, to touch any of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, we ended up uh, moving on without him. Um with the new record and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, just like many conflicts of interest and uh, personality stuff. It's not working out. <laughs> sure. All right. No, it was best to move on without him. Um, but uh, aside from that, it's been the same, like, four of us through, I mean, since in 2002 is when I joined. Yeah. Um, that was a crazy time for me, too. I, um, How's that? I had just gotten married mm -hmm. um let's see 2000 2000 um i was playing in piebald up until then mm -hmm. the band broke up yep and the first time in my life i didn't have a band and i was like were you lost totally lost because <laughs> you're like um, a career i mean like you've been doing this for how long i mean since since you're at like 15 16 yeah because i mean you mentioned you knew kingpin yeah so i mean that was i mean it's it's hard to remember because we we're kids, but any video I've seen, even from the band that kind of morphed into that funny wagon, um, I don't know if you <laughs> yeah, remember yeah, that. I yeah, remember. I mean, I look at videos of that, and it's like we had fans, like a room full of like those hundreds of kids going ape shit, you know, all the time. <laughs> yeah, it was like hard to get into those shows. Yeah, and like I think I've romanticized it. So I'm like, I, don't I think must so. have. And then I see a video and I'm like, no, it's just like I remember. They're no. like the best fucking shows. It was really not, it was a really great scene. It was uh it was truly what I thought the hardcore scene should have been and could have been and yeah. it was. It, it was for a, yeah. for a very brief snapshot of time, I think. Yeah. You know. I mean, I don't know so much about the eighties boston scene but there was a scene for sure yeah yep. and i think maybe it kind of died out a little bit as those bands started maybe moving on towards like other styles of music or breaking mm -hmm. up or whatever and there was like a little lull and then right around 89 90 91 92 it just got huge mm -hmm. and the way that i think of it is that with the whole Nirvana thing and that shift in what was popular, our generation of hardcore kid was the, the bubbling under of that. Sure. And it had become so big, like the hardcore scene itself was pretty big at that point. It didn't really fraction off into like sub scenes so much. It was still, if there was a hardcore show mm. or like emo, if you wanted to call it that yeah. as well, even some metal stuff, everyone would go and so you can have kind of a mixed bill and play the channel mm -hmm. and there'd be a thousand kids there you know <laughs> yeah i mean i think it was only uh like fractured or excuse me um separated by town or like i said blackstone valley mm -hmm. all those most of those bands i think probably foe was from from boston 
maybe. Uh, okay. But the rest of those other bands, I think, were from that area. Yeah. I mean, yeah. where where you where you where did you grow up? Holliston. Holliston. Yeah. yeah, little town. But like, I started drumming. There happened to be kids my age that were getting into the same stuff at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's what became Funny Wagon, which then became Kingpin. And I mean, we had a record out. Um, when we were teenagers still in high school yeah Suburban Voice records mm-hmm. and uh, I mean we were as big as you're gonna get and I was still a teenager yeah. and it's not any rock star stuff but it fucks with your mind a little bit cause I have always grown up thinking oh you just do a band and you make music and you have tons of fans and that kept going because it was band after band after band and mm-hmm. popular band. You were in a lot of, yeah. Because um, right after Kingpin, I joined Shelter, which yeah. was one of the biggest bands at the Absolutely. time. And um, it just like kept going and going like that. And then I didn't even realize until like my late 30s, like, oh, there's people that are my age around Boston. Because I started meeting more of like mainstreamers and like rock people and mm-hmm. stuff. And, uh, oh they've been just kicking around doing local bands their whole lives and like their friends are showing up at the shows or they're playing like some like you know obscure club to nobody and they're happy to do that and I'm just like I don't know if I could (laughs) do that as a you know 40 year old I'm 45 now right I'm 40 yeah so you know your reasons for playing music change as you get older and what you get out of it changes too I think yeah. So at this point in your life, I mean, you're are you you're doing more studio and less drumming. Definitely. And it's something I've been thinking more and more about because I, I still think of myself as a drummer. Mm-hmm. I'd rather be just drumming in bands. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, American Nightmare, we're still active, but no one lives near each other. There's no weekly band practice or anything. Yeah, so what do you do? You just get together, like, yeah. for, like, a month period and just... Yeah, like, uh, what was it? A month and a half ago, uh, all the guys flew in. Everyone stayed at my house. It was a lot of fun. And uh, we all rehearsed in the studio there. Oh, awesome. And um, I think we had, like, three days thinking, oh, we'll be lucky if we get three songs <laughs> written and... Um, we did like eight Damn. and we demoed fully demoed them. They were like, we were excited about it. That must be sweet to have all of it right there. You just, you just, it is set up and go. It is the best. Yeah. How did you get into recording? I mean, um, was that just a natural step for you or sort of, um, when was it? I, I keep jumping around, it's all right. but, uh, it happened when, uh, my wife and I moved back to Boston. I was about to say earlier, we, mm-hmm. When Pieball broke up, oh, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. not in a band for the first time. I uh, moved to California with her. Um, she had just graduated college, and I uh, thought she was going to move out there, and we were going to break up. But I was like, you know, it's positive. I, I felt there was something special going on yeah. there. And uh, so when the band broke up, um, I was like, wait, I can move with you do you want me to go with you she's like yeah and uh originally she had like a crew of a couple people that were moving out together um i think to la or something and uh by the time uh uh we were ready to do the move everyone had bailed out so it was just her and me 
and um, I finished up. Uh, I did like another uh, shelter tour uh, mm-hmm. for the summer. Did a bunch of shelter tours that summer, 2000, yeah. And then uh, we just packed up my uh, tour van, drove across the country together, ended up in uh, Oakland, mm-hmm. um, lived in the van. Like on the streets, punk style, um, Damn, on the streets awesome. of uh, uh, like Berkeley and Oakland. How old were you this, at this uh, time? Let's see, that's 2000, so I was 27, I guess. It's a good time to do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's younger than me, she just graduated uh, college. Oh, shit. So uh, she's five and a half years younger than me. And uh, we moved out there together, and we just kind of like did the van thing for a little while. And I mean, we had the money to get a place, but we were just kind of taking our time because it was fun. You yeah, <laughs> you can save a lot of money doing yeah, it that way. Yeah. And when you're ready to move in, you have all this extra equity or whatever, you know? Yeah, but I mean, it was just fun. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, we got a place there, ended up living there for two years, but I couldn't find a band that I wanted to play with out there. I ended up jamming with uh, Jesse Michaels uh, from Operation Ivy. Oh, shit. Um, awesome. He's doing kind of a garage rock kind of thing, playing guitar. And it was pretty cool, but my head wasn't there at the time, and I don't know why, but I felt like he wasn't motivated in the same way that I was. Um, And looking back, I have no reason to really think that, but I don't know. My own head was just thinking, I need something more than this or whatever, and uh, I ended up shipping my drums back east flying to D.C. a few times recording. Uh, I used to record with uh, Ken Olden at his studio down there. Okay. And uh, did some projects with Purcell. Um, some weird ones, too. We did, like, a like a metal-y kind of one, and then, like, a more hardcore one, and then we did... Um, I think at the time I did a Better Than a Thousand album that became Face the Enemy. And then... Um, I, it was a weird time because I, I kept going back and forth flying back to do these recording sessions. I played on a Good Clean Fun record. Really? Hilarious. Because, <laughs> like, Issa is... Not that he's, like, kind of a cheapskate, but, like, <laughs> I think his, like, planning was just like, oh, yeah, I got a cheap plane ticket. We'll fly you in. You'll get here, like, whatever o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, Red eye. Yeah, and then record all day into the night and fly home that night and it was like the way the tickets worked or something Mm -hmm. it made sense to just fly in and out for one day and I was like I have to learn and and kind of not help write but help arrange I guess Mm -hmm. um, an album's worth of songs record them perfectly and then fly home you know so that's what I did I flew in Learned songs, made some tweaks. Yeah. Um, that was uh, the album straight out of hardcore. Yeah. And uh, then just flew home and that was that. And, and so I kept doing that stuff while I was living out in California. Mm-hmm. Um, Saves the Day came through town. I'd known them from previous tours and they were like, oh, yeah, we're, we need a drummer. Like, would you want to try out? And I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so when they were done with the tour, flew out to New York, yeah. did like a tryout, and I liked the band, 
Um, so it wasn't hard to learn the songs. I kind of remembered them from being on tour and watching them every night mm -hmm. and um, loved the dudes. So it just felt really natural to, to do it. I, I didn't really have a place to play the drums, so I didn't actually play along with the recordings to learn it. Yeah. I just listened to it a lot and air drummed. But I showed up there and just played like every song they asked me to play. We jammed on some extra ones and uh, they were like, yeah, cool. All right, let's do some tours. So I, I toured with them in 2002. Then when that was done, my wife and I, we bought an RV, drove to Vegas, got married, drove around the country just cool. seeing all the stuff that you don't have time to see when you're on yeah. tour, like all the national parks and stuff, monuments Grand and stuff, and all that. Um, kind of zigzag. How long did you do that for? Um, I mean, lived in that for about a year and a half. Shit. And so, so you probably saw a lot. Yeah, we took our time, like getting around, but ended up on the East Coast in uh, North Carolina, where she's from. Mm. Hung out on the beach all that summer. Then, I mean, the whole plan was I'm gonna live where. Sounds like a movie. Yeah, it's like, we're, <laughs> let's live where my next band is. Yeah. Which it, it was still up in the air whether I was gonna still do Saves the Day or, or whatever. We're thinking, like, oh, do I go to LA and, like, mm -hmm. do the LA? Do like a studio, a studio thing? thing? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know. Like, and then um, we ended up going up to Boston and. Uh, that's when I joined American Nightmare. And so we just stayed there. Mm -hmm. And we lived in this big uh, punk house with like 10 people or something and practiced in the basement. And it was like hardcore kids' dream house. It was American Nightmare, um, or like members of uh, Cave In, two of the guys from Cave In, uh, Hope Conspiracy practiced in there, down there too. So the basement was just junk everywhere. And then like three drum sets for the three different bands and drummers and that's the it, best it, it was awesome yeah. and like we're all friends there's people hanging out all the time it was such a good time in our lives and mm -hmm. my wife and I still talk about it all the time yeah I had a similar experience I lived in like a like uh, a version of that but more like a math rock indie rock house in Watertown where there was always two drum sets up uh -huh. there was like three bands that practiced there and we, and we lived in this area where there was really no houses close yeah. so we could practice whenever we wanted so sometimes That's we practice awesome. at like 2 o'clock in the morning yeah. no, one gave, <laughs> no one gave a shit That's great I still yeah I still remember that house talk about it very fondly it was a lot of a lot of beer yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that brings me to um, that's where I got into recording because um, I, I uh, never was interested in recording um, before then mm -hmm. in the studios I would get really into the drumming part of it I actually became um, like a drum tech for hire and went to studios and got hired to tune the drums so you got really good at tuning drums mm -hmm. sort of a young age yeah and so that part of studio stuff I fully understood and you know like mic placement and stuff just kind of like from just being around it seems mm -hmm. in there I guess um, but I don't remember any of the gear or anything I wish I did because I had been to some cool studios and um, I bought my first four track as a 30 year old or something and uh 
Which is kind of late to get, a, get your first record track when, you're, yeah. when you've been playing music for as long as you have. Yeah, but I never needed to record. Yeah, like, you always, always went to a studio. Yeah, um, or you had a guitar player that you knew who had one or something like that. Yeah, actually, in Kingpin, our guitarist Matt, he had a four track, mm-hmm. but um, I don't really remember using those four track recordings so much. I had this boombox that made awesome recordings, <laughs> yeah. and I remember finding the best spot in the basement to put it and we made stuff that we released off of that I mean just you know demos but yeah. still people listened to that <laughs> um, but uh, yeah so I got my first four track as a 30 year old mm-hmm. um, then it was like weeks later I was like oh they make 8 track cassette recorders and this is when I first started getting into eBay and I was like wow everything is being sold on eBay there's all this <laughs> shit anything you want yeah. search it and it's mm-hmm. there and uh, shortly after, I found a two-inch tape machine, 16-track tape machine. It was an Ampex MM1000, uh, which is like the first model of two-inch tape machine. Um, and I think they beat out 3M by a matter of months or something, like who came out with the two-inch machine first. Yeah. Anyways, it was in Massachusetts, luckily. So I went there and picked it up. And uh, it's it's a funny like turn of events with this one machine. I bought it and I noticed there was a WGBH sticker on it. Huh. So it was previously owned by WGBH. Yeah. And um, it was in disrepair. It was in some guy's barn. It was stored there. I don't think he ever used it. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, my friend Kurt Kurt Blue does God City. Yeah. He was like, oh, I used to have an MM1000. Um, I had two machines. I got them from WGBH, and I was like, "Wait a minute, WGBH!" And I'm like, "Dude, I think I have your machine." And he's like, "Did you buy it from a guy that like he maybe had it in a barn and probably looked like he didn't even know what to do with it?" And I was like, "Yes, I did." And he's like, "That's my old machine." And he's like, "I recorded." Um, like an American Nightmare demo on that or something like that. I was like, oh, that's crazy. And then, um, so I had that, learned how to fix that thing up. Um, and uh, in, in a way, the, the technology that made that obsolete made it very easy for me to repair because if we're talking computer technology. I was able to email all these old techs, mm-hmm. uh, people that used to work for Ampex, stuff like that and they could kind of like help me troubleshoot the thing and so I got it working and everything and uh, then uh, my wife and I and one of the guys that lived in the house Jonas um, Jonas played bass for Hope Conspiracy okay um, so another musician mm-hmm. the three of us were kind of a little more responsible than the rest of the people in the house and we are like we should buy a house it'd be cool to buy a house yeah we went from just casually talking about it to next thing you know we're looking at houses and we're like wanting to buy some place we can build soundproof rooms mm-hmm. and build a studio at where were you looking just whatever we could afford as close to the city as we could get mm-hmm. ended up being Medford the place I'm at now oh, okay so the three of us went in on the house bought the house I went right to work soundproofing it building the studio out and, uh, you know, we thought even just the money that we would save in uh, practice space rent, it would be worth it. For sure. And so in the first year, it paid for itself from that. Mm-hmm. But um, 
Yeah, Jonas ended up uh, moving. Um, I mean, for a while, him and he, he got married, um, and there's like two married couples living in the house. Then he got work out in San Francisco. They moved out. We were able to buy them out, mm-hmm. and so we stayed there. And uh, I just kept getting more and more into recording, and bought more and more gear. But there's like a tipping point where I, mean, I had enough gear to make decent recordings, but I wasn't so great at it yet. And um, I did realize that I could make my own recordings that were good enough for me. Mm-hmm. And that's really all I wanted out of it. Um, But then, you know, friends would be like, hey, can you make a demo for me? And so I did that and kind of just like treaded water for a while. Just like trying to keep my head above water with, you know, learning how to record and and to be good enough at it. And, you know, slowly got better, slowly got better gear also. And then um, about five years into it, I felt like I was pretty good. And my gear was pretty good. You got great gear for sure. I do for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, with that uh, MM1000, I ended up uh, selling that tape machine to Henry Hirsch, who I mean, he's like not the you know most widely known um, producer, but he did like all of Lenny Kravitz's stuff. I think he did some Madonna stuff, Stones or something, but. He's a heavy hitter for sure. Hit this place, Waterfront Studio in uh, Hudson, New York. Hmm. And uh, I put that tape machine on eBay because I bought a newer one, the current one I have now. Yeah. Uh, still in Ampex, but two models later. And uh, much more like moddable, mm-hmm. easier to work on, a little more modern transport as well. Yeah. And so, anyways, I sold this thing to Henry and uh, it was under the condition that I would deliver it there and set it up for him. And so I took the trip out, set it up, and he was like really cool about everything. It was awesome. Yeah. Um, but he was really picky and particular about stuff. Um, like those machines didn't have a uh, auto locator on it or like a visible timer. Mm-hmm. One of my friends had like an aftermarket one from the 70s, and <coughs> I told Henry about it, and he was like, I gotta have it. Make a deal with your friend. Yeah, and I just I made that happen and like facilitated that kind of stuff, and um, I just gotten a remote for the thing, but I never used it because my control room's so small. I never needed it, mm-hmm. but the remotes are really rare. I searched on eBay forever, daily for those things, and I had uh, one of my uh, tech friends that I had made just through emailing back and forth about this particular machine. He was like, hey, you still have that uh, Ampex MM1000? I've got a remote kicking around here. It's a little dirty, but I think it works. I'll just send it to you. Awesome. Send it to me for free. I was like, wow. <laughs> I was so excited to have this thing, but I, I had no use for it. But it was like, I couldn't have sold that machine to Henry without having the remote. Mm-hmm. But my asking price was not so much. It might have been like $3,000 or something. Yeah. And, uh, I was happy to get that much for it. Mm-hmm. I felt like that's what it was worth. Sure. In these modern times. Yeah. On eBay? Yeah. In the time of eBay? Sure. Yeah, yeah. But this was a Craigslist thing. Oh, okay. On eBay. He just, like, his tech was, like, hunting for a new tape. Oh, shit. Okay. And I remember setting the thing up, and Henry was standing next to his tech. He's like, Chip, look at this thing. People are going to walk in this room and say, I want to record on that thing. 
looks so cool. And um, that's what I said when I first saw a tape machine that size. It was a 24 track, but when I saw it, I was like, I want to record on that. Yeah, it's like, beautiful. It just like looks like like beautiful, immense. Machinery. Yeah, yeah. Like, just like well elegant, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're so cool. Like. I'm not even like an analog purist. I was gonna say, how did you get into just doing analog? Because I know you do do some digital. Like you, you sometimes like deal I mean, digital and stuff like that. I do, and I don't. Yeah, it has to end up in the digital realm. Mm. I generally mix onto tape, so it's from the two two inch uh, twenty four track tape down to um, half inch two track tape, and uh, then when the session's all done, everything's mixed. I get my laptop and just hook that in and just dump everything to digital. Play in real time. Yeah, exactly. And that's the extent of my digital recording. Like, I've never tracked a band digitally. I don't even know what I would do, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I got into it... Um, oh, wait, I was, I was about to yeah, yeah, finish sorry. about that one tape machine. Um, Henry sold the studio a few years ago, and... Uh, I don't know, studio shifted hands at least one other time. Mm -hmm. um, then only a month ago, uh, some guy contacted me just asking questions about analog stuff because uh, he's going to be opening a studio pretty soon. And he was talking about tape machines. And he's like, yeah, I've been talking to someone about a MM-1000. And I was like, oh, I used to have one of those. He's like, yeah, and yeah. he's like, yeah, this used to be long, belong to Henry Hirsch. I'm like, no way, dude. That's my old machine. <laughs> and I was like, buy that machine. Like, I totally, like, fixed it. It's, like, refurbished. Like, it's got the remote. It's got the counter. It's got everything. Just buy it. He's like, yeah, but... They're asking fifteen thousand dollars. What? I was like, dude, <laughs> that's ridiculous. That yeah, um, that's ridiculous. So he passed on it, but it was just cool to like have that same machine pop back into my life. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny how equipment will do that sometimes. Yeah, but that, see, that'll never happen with like a computer. Oh, oh absolutely. You not. know what I mean? Like, this thing's a piece of trash. Yeah, but like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just such a different. I've had a a, a Fender Basement One Hundred circle through my life. At least twice. Really? <laughs> that was that I that was my first tube amp that I ever bought. Crazy. Yeah. My friend bought it and then my other friend bought it. Yeah. Like within ten year period of each other. Yeah. And some I somehow found found I never wanted it back. I was like, I don't know why he bought this in the first place, it's junk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I got rid of it. Yeah. I'm gonna turn turn you up a little bit here. That's okay. Should I move close? Uh no. I just didn't want to overload it. Um, um, yeah, I used to have a uh, truck. I had a Ford Bronco 2. It was my first car mm -hmm. that I bought. So that would be what year? 1990. It was a 84. So they stopped break, making the Bronco 2. Like, they must did. Have, yeah, when it was like 81, I yeah. think I stopped making it. But I had an 84, which was the first model of that. Mm -hmm. But I got into four-wheeling. So over time, I you know put better axles on it. Mm -hmm. Suspension system, the and you installed it all yourself. All, and I learned how to work on cars from that. Yeah, and that's I'm awesome. Like a self-taught mechanic because of that, and mm -hmm. all the you know vans from Tour and all mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But um, I had that for so long. It's my first car. I bought it in, I guess it was ninety, and sold it. I think in two thousand seven or something like that, and uh, sold it to a friend of a friend because. He always liked the truck, but it was when gas prices got crazy, mm -hmm. and um, 
I didn't really see myself using it all that much anymore, and I wanted it to go to someone who would use it. So I was mm-hmm. sitting in a backyard <laughs> and uh, sold it to this guy under the condition that if he ever got rid of it, he would sell it back to me. <laughs> and he must have forgotten because so much time has gone by. I can't imagine. I've made that it. deal with people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for for but I think he forgot about it. Yeah, is it gone? You think? It. it I mean, it was such a character piece that. I mean, you could just still have it. It's the yeah. kind of thing you have forever. Do you think it's just sitting in a garage or in the back, like you said, in the backyard somewhere? I don't know. Rotting away somewhere? I need to think that. Yeah. So I put bad. a lot of work into that thing. <laughs> but, you know, there's a theme here. I like machines. I like fixing stuff, rebuilding stuff. Yep. Taking something and making it better. Mm-hmm. And I've done that with all my gear, especially my tape machines. Yeah. So that being a part of my character, I mean, you can't mod... A computer, you know. Yeah, I mean, not in the same yeah, way. Like, not, not in the same way. No, no. I mean, I'm not like you're not like ant- code like and making my own plugins. Anti luddite or neo neo luddite? Are you really like, <laughs> like right. no no technology kind of? Yeah, but I mean, like I was saying, I'm not anti technology, and I am not an analog purist. It's just what I like. Mm-hmm. You know, like the workflow of it. Um, just makes sense in your head. It does. Yeah. And I like machines. I like, you know, it's comforting knowing that, oh, there's the music on this physical reel mm-hmm. of tape. I'm putting it on the shelf over here. Mm-hmm. And there it stays. When I want it, pull it out again. Yeah. And it will still work. It's not just on some phantom memory box somewhere. Yeah. And, I agree. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Yeah. But um, surely I could have just gotten Pro Tools or something when I first started getting into recording. Like, after the 8-track, mm-hmm. I could have moved on to Pro Tools, but instead I found a Tascam reel-to-reel uh, half-inch 16-track machine and a Mackie, Mackie mixing board. That was more exciting to me. And I made a, a record for uh, my band at the time. It was Blood Horse. Yeah. Like a stoner rock, stoner metal band. I love that band. Love. Me too. That was, a, that, was a, that was a that was a fun that record. The EP was really great too. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, not that I liked our stuff less and less as we did it, but I think it got a little bit kind of like further away from where we were at at the time we made each recording. Mm-hmm. When we did the demo. It was like we only had those demo songs. It was like all fresh, and then when we made the EP. We had already started started writing other songs, and then you know we finally recorded the EP and put that out. Mm-hmm. But that was like recorded at that house in Alston, Twelve Wadsworth Street, in the basement. Really? Yeah. And um, I didn't really know what the heck I was doing, but I listened to that recording, and I don't hate it. It has its <laughs> flaws or sure. whatever, but that's every like the recording's gonna have it. its flaws, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to, especially when you're doing analog, you have to make peace with that kind of stuff, I would imagine. Yeah. I'm going to crunch my pretzels into this mic. That's good. Do it. I got to say, and I'm realizing it now, as someone that interviews other people, pretzels are why do you bring the crunchiest <laughs> snack food? It's not here? the best choice. <laughs> but I, I can't think of anything else that people, like, you know, like, for instance, you mentioned you're vegan. I'm like, trying to find something that everyone, pizza, or not pizza, pretzels are, like, kind of universally liked. Yeah. It's kind of what. These are the best pretzels. Yeah. Yeah. Snyder's a pain. That's right. <laughs> um, so, do you want to talk about, like all these bands you've been in and like I mean a lot of them it seemed like you like 
what was it? You know, a lot of them seem like from what you, just from what you told me, like you can't you come in like maybe later in their their lives. Totally. In and a way, how do you that, yeah, how do you think her. that works for you? <laughs> and like, I mean, it seems like that's like something that you traditionally it seems like something that you're you're doing. Constantly. Yeah, I mean, you come in somewhere like in the you know the end or I don't know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it ends up being the end. Yeah, but um, or at least the end of one chapter of any particular band but I mean from I mean I don't know where to begin from, that's from right. Kingpin even well, that's what I'm saying like we Kingpin. used to play shows with Shelter mm-hmm. we all like each other as people yeah. and um, Ray even told me one time we were just like hanging out in the parking lot at one of the shows we played he's like oh we gotta get you in the band somehow <laughs> and this was like way before I was in the band mm-hmm. and I was just like all right. Flatter whatever. whatever. But like, he was just like, cool. Mm-hmm. I was like 17 or something. Yeah. It's nice to be. Ray of today is like, yeah. we got to get you in the band, dude. But I was never starstruck with any of those dudes because everyone's so down to earth and everyone's kind of just doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like they play in a band. I play in a band. Whatever. Yeah. So it was easy to just become friends with everybody in an organic kind of way. And, uh, Norm Arenas, who went on to be in uh, uh, Texas is the Reason, he played in Shelter for a little mm. bit. And he used to come hang out with us uh, in the Kingpin days. Um, he would come up and, like, stay with us and hang out and everything. And he, how, how old was he at that time? I mean, he was already so, the same age. Yeah. Um, mm. So, I mean, we were all teenagers. But back then in the scene, like, we would go to Connecticut and mm-hmm. to go to a show and hang yeah. out with the Connecticut kids. And you'd stay at their houses and everyone was friends, you know. We'd even go to New York for some shows. Um, mm. And then, you know, you start playing shows in New York or playing in Connecticut. And, you know, anywhere you can drive in a weekend, that's what we would do. And I think it's being a teenager... And also the times where it was still underground. This was like a pre-Nirvana world there yep. where when kids looked like you, you either knew them already or you would go and make friends. Mm-hmm. Or if someone had a skateboard. <laughs> yeah, you, you know? knew. Yeah. You knew right away. Yeah. It's like that it's like that age old thing when you kinda when you know, when you were a kid and you whoever was out in front of your house. I was friends with that person right then. But yeah. when you get older it's getting harder to make friends, but like you can just look at someone and you're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. We'll, be, we'll be pals. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> so, um, I mean, with the joining the band stuff, um, Norm was in Shelter, and where we were already friends, mm-hmm. and I mean, I, I think I can say he was a fan of Kingpin. Sure. Um, and uh, Kendra, their drummer, I think he just wasn't into road life and uh, couldn't take being in band. And he was a full-on Krishna guy anyway. So, oh, okay. Like, yeah, so, like, he he wanted out or something like that. But um, I got a call at work. I used to work at this local farm. I was a mile from my house, Outpost Farm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a call I there yeah. from Norm. He was like, ah, Al, hey, Shelter needs a drummer, dude. You should be our drummer or, you know, something. I think it was him that made the initial call Mm -hmm. and uh, I was at such a bad weird place in my life Kingpin had just broken up Mm -hmm. and I found myself just being a farmer (laughs) and I'm I'm like I don't know I I had gone to some college it was like freshman year in college sort of time of my life Mm -hmm. except 
I stopped going after the first semester because I thought it was like a big sham. Where were you going? Like, Premium like State it. or something? No, it was Dean Junior College. Dean Junior Which I think College. became Dean College. Okay. And I don't even know if they exist anymore. Yeah, no, but, I think it's still around. You know, I, I applied to Berkeley because I thought, oh, I love being a musician. Maybe I'll be a musician. So I applied there. I think you would have regretted that. I definitely would have. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, I mean, I had a record out and, like, fans and stuff. And uh, I applied to Berkeley and didn't get in because on paper, you know, I didn't know how to read music or anything. And they ask you all these questions like that, and um, it probably looked like I was not a musician and trying to go to Berkeley or something, or some, <laughs> some guy that dicks around in the trunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so didn't get in there, luckily. Went to Dean Junior College while working full-time at the farm, living with my mom at her house, mm -hmm. and uh, was so fucking busy, because I was still like, I mean, it was the tail end of Kingpin, but playing in a real band, mm -hmm. having a real job, mm -hmm. and uh, going to full-time school. Yeah, that's and a lot. And I just moved in with my girlfriend. It was like the first time I moved out of my house. Um, let me get the timeline right. I was living with her when I joined Shelter. So I think I had stopped going to school at that point. It gets all blurry there. But at some point, moved in with her, stopped going to school, and was just a full-time farmer. Then Kingpin breaks up, and I'm like, shit, fuck, what do I do now? I gotta start a new band? Mm. Um, I jammed with uh, Aaron from uh, Bane, and, uh, and to be honest, and I don't know if he'll even hear this interview, but... I felt like his timing wasn't great. He kept, like, pulling ahead of the drums or, like, lagging behind. I remember yeah. something like that. Whenever we'd go into a fast part, yeah, I was like, oh, it's, like, it's not right. We're not playing well together. Mm -hmm. And Chemistry. So, I, yeah, I guess that, had I done that, that would have been Bane. That would have been the Bane drama or something. Bane, um, Bane was a pretty big for five or six Bane's years, cool right? Band. Yeah. Love all those guys. It would have been a cool band yeah. to do. But um, All that wasn't really stuff. into that, and uh, didn't know what the hell I was doing, and things started getting like shitty with my girlfriend, and I kind of wanted out. We just wanted different things out of life. I wanted to be like in the city with friends and like touring in a band, even though that was like a dream still, you know. And uh, we were definitely like pulling apart, and. Uh, I don't need to get into any details or anything. Mm -hmm. There aren't even not a lot of details, but uh, I was living with her, got the call to do shelter, said yes, um, and here's what I, was going on in my life. The thing that any normal person would have done is say, said, no, I can't, can't join leave. shelter. Can't do it. Can't leave I, all uh, this. I uh, Well, I was like living in my first apartment away from home, Mm -hmm. had the girlfriend that I was still like in this like delusion of thinking it was probably gonna maybe work out or something or like I think at that point I still wanted it to I think it was after the tour where I was like there's no way we're gonna work she's too like needy not not really the type of person who can be with a touring musician yeah can't self-sustain or like self yeah yeah you know just like jealousy that kind of thing yeah sure 
Um, so, uh, I'd also applied to go back to college and I didn't know what to do. I was like, oh, I'll just apply to Framingham State. I think I can afford that. That's where I went. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was like, I mean, college didn't cost as much back then as it does now. No, especially that school. I mean, if you were in, in state, it was yeah. cheap. Yeah. Cheap. It was like what I could afford. Yeah. Um, I didn't even think in terms of taking a loan out or anything. And I still don't think in those terms. Um, and uh, I... It's like the same week I got that call, I got an acceptance letter, and then they needed a hundred dollar deposit or something like that. Yeah. And uh, it was also approaching the busy season at work at the farm. It was like late summer, fall was coming, harvest season, and all mm-hmm. that. And I mean, at that point, I was still a kid, but I was like managing. So I started working there when I was 10. Um, we had like nothing growing up and I needed a job when sure. I was 10. So I worked there. Yeah. Um, but, um, so I know I, a lot of people worked on farms when, when they were really young. Yeah. And ended up doing it until they were like 18. Yeah. I mean, the labor laws are different. Uh, I remember I was 10 years old, it was like 1984 or something like that, and uh, made a dollar fifteen an hour. Holy shit. Yeah, but that was a lot as yeah. a 10-year-old, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, I worked there all through high school. Got raises, obviously. Yeah. Um, and, you're 18 uh, years old getting 150. <laughs> yeah, fuck. Um, and so uh, to do the tour and say saying yes meant I have to tell my mother I'm not going to college and rip up the acceptance letter, you know? Mm-hmm. I had to tell my needy girlfriend, oh, I'm going on this tour that was kind of a big tour. It was... Who else was I on the tour? I want to say three months or something, but it was at least a month and a half. It was mm-hmm. a, a long tour. Um, we were the headliner. They were just like random okay. openers. All right. Um, but then... Uh, That's a big deal. It, it was. for I mean, I was 19 by then. Yeah. So for a 19-year-old, I felt like an adult. Sure. But that's a kid, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, but like when you're asked to do this huge thing, you immediately think in that, those terms and you yeah. probably grow up a lot faster, I'm sure. I think so. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, St. Owen College and the girl, and then at the farm, the boss was definitely a father figure to me. Sure. It's like a World War II vet, more of a grandfather age, I would mm-hmm. say. But uh, awesome guy. Can't say enough good things about him. He really shaped a lot of who I am. Um, and I can go into that. Yeah, sure, for sure. But, um, I mean, was he disappointed? Very much. Yeah. Uh, he was so pissed. And uh, I, I don't know if he felt some kind of connection in the way that I did, because in the way that many men of his generation were, they didn't show a lot of emotions and mm-hmm. stuff. So um, I can only sort of guess by what actions I did see. But I asked him if I could do this tour, and he knew when I bought my first drum set. He knew when I started playing in bands and playing in shows and, you know, asking for weekends off here and there. That kind of thing. this was going to be your path. Um, but, I mean, he watched that whole thing unfold and he yeah. knew that a tour like this was probably all I ever wanted. And he was like, if you're doing this tour, today's your last day. And I was like, well, I need to do it. I'm doing it. And... I was in tears because yeah, he got so angry. Like, think of like a angry old 
white man. Like, that was this person. I, I think you know? I know a lot of them. Yeah. And, um, I mean, he's been nothing but nice, you know? But yeah. this really just, like, hit him in the wrong way or something. And I, I remember just kind of, like, finishing out the work day with, you know, all my coworkers who were my friends and, like, family. I mean, we were tight there. It was, like, yeah. family. And everyone was, like, no one could believe it. And I'm, like, crying, like, cleaning stuff up. Um, and he, like, went up and went to the office, figured out how much money he owed me, and literally had, like, crumpled bills and some change and just, like, threw it at me. Fuck and I was, that. like, picking it up on the Jeez. floor. And, you know... I have a lot more, uh, you know, self-pride, self-worth than I did then. Yeah. I would have been like, fuck you, and, like, left. But, like, I think I finished out my shift. That is some harsh shit. Yeah. Very. no need for that. Yeah. But, you know, that's how things were. And that was my last working day there. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then uh, told my mom, hey, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to go on tour with Harry Krishnas. <laughs> yeah. And she Holy shit, she never really understood what excuse me, bands were, mm-hmm. what bands did. did had she ever seen you play? I mean, obviously these she shows. She play at like the high school talent show. Yeah. Where um, Kingpin played a song or something or it was like members of Kingpin, I think. And then uh, I did a drum solo. <laughs> and... Uh, she saw that but uh, I remember being a little confused when uh, I did my first arena tour Saves the Day uh, we played with uh, Blink-182 and Green Day on this thing called the Pop Disaster Tour yep and it was all arenas and so we're playing Great Woods which my mom had dropped me off to see concerts there and um, she had moved up to Maine since then so she mm-hmm. was a little further away but I was like mom I'm playing Great Woods. Like, you gotta come. And uh, she didn't go. achievement. She didn't fucking come. She didn't go, man. What the fuck? But I think she just, like, didn't understand what any of it was. She grew up in the mountains of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Not that you can't be worldly and come from there, but... I mean, she... Where did the music come from for you? For me? When you were a kid. Um, I don't know. My mom definitely loved music. Mm-hmm. Sort of lame music, but music nonetheless. <laughs> music lame still? You used to consider lame today? Like, uh, you don't no, have appreciation. Love yeah, I love it. Um, in the uh, station wagon in the 70s, disco. Yeah? All disco. Oof. And that I kind of hated for a while, but now it's like... I love so is it, are those, what years are disco? Is that 72, 73? Uh, like well, 73, I mean, 74. Kind of anything in pop music then. But I mean, I, I remember kind of the later 70s stuff. Yeah. Of, uh, you know, like Donna Summer and, yeah, and that's, stuff yeah, like so that. Yeah, that's more um, 76, 77. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was born in 78, so you were, what, five? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was 73. Okay. But uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, all the songs that were popular on the radio from the time I was born until mm-hmm. I was, you know, picking my own music, they're all in there still. And what I've done is, because I, I don't listen to a lot of new music, mm-hmm. not a lot of it, it's, it excites me. Um, you know, a lot of it is the way it's recorded, I hate to say. Sure. Um, I understand. And, uh, or not the recording itself, but the editing. When you edit stuff to the extent that happens a lot, especially with heavy music, 
they take out the very things that attract me to that kind of music. So I don't really listen to anything modern and heavy. Um, but, you know, some stuff I get attracted to. But it, anyways, I find myself kind of searching for those songs that there's like a tiny memory of it in my head. And I'm just like sifting through stuff. And now with Spotify, you think of an artist and it's just right there. Yeah. And so I'm on this huge wave of that kind of stuff right now. And uh, I also just uh, had... Uh, couple of kids we got a two and a half year old and a uh, two month old yeah and heard that you had another kid with uh with a two and a half year old he grew up on kind of the same stuff from the era when i was like a little it's getting kid. recycled it is it is and even like 50s like doo-wop early 60s stuff too um just popular music mm-hmm. of that era but i find that it's pretty much like new to me you know then I'm digging deeper and finding songs that I've heard before, discovering old bands that are new to me. Mm-hmm. And so I get just as much new music as anyone else, except it's old. It's only new to me. Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> but uh, I forget how we got on that tangent now. Oh, with the disco in the back of mom's car. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where did, so the but, music, uh, is it from, from her mainly? Um, mainly? I mean, music? she definitely loved music and had a passion for stuff in a way that you know some people are like thinkers some people are feelers I think my mom was more of a feeler Mm -hmm. sure Um, uh, but it wasn't that there was music around the house all the time but I just took to it loved music from as early as I can remember Mm. Um, what's the what got you into hardcore um, was it like a friend of yours went I mean, to a show and was like, hey, I'm going to this thing? It happened exactly right along with me playing that style. Mm-hmm. It's a very exciting time in my life because I got into classic rock, you know, Zeppelin, The Who, yeah. stuff like that. And uh, loved heavier stuff, Black Sabbath. And then you want something heavier and you don't really know where to go. And no one in my family is giving it to me. So you look to like kids in the neighborhood, like the older kids, and think about, you know, the mid 80s, late 80s. um, What are those kids into? And, you know, we're discovering, I think because we're in the suburbs and you get into stuff a little slower there, or at least you did before the internet. you know, suicidal tendencies, mm-hmm. minor threat, um, I don't know, misfits, like stuff from, you know, three, four, five, six years before yep. the present time at that time. And that was like, oh my God, this stuff is what I want to be listening to. And that's right when I started playing drums. You know, I first bought my first drum set. It was 1987. And I had the members that would follow me with Funny Wagon and Kingpin just waiting for me to have a drum set. It was uh, Matt Catman, Keith Driver. Matt Catman, holy shit. You know Matt? Yeah, I worked, for Matt Cat- I worked with Matt Catman for a long time. No way, and you were comics? You were comics, yeah. yeah. Natick. <laughs> um, holy shit. Yeah, he's from Holliston too, right? Yeah. Do you know Dennis Noble? 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I lived with Dennis Nolan for almost 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Crazy. Yep. Yeah, Dennis was like... Like a little few on years the, behind on you? On the fringes of... Yeah. He wasn't a hardcore kid like we were, but then mm. there's like the like the next layer of the onion. You know? Yeah, he was listening to quicksand and shit like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and like, you know, we had Holliston was fucking crazy though. Yeah, it seemed like to be a center for all of that. It was. I mean, which that's is how which I is remember crazy because was was Holliston? I mean, was Holliston like kind of the town it is now? Like, was it? Did it still have the money it has now? I don't know then? because we didn't have money. Yeah. Um, my dad left when I was like five. My mom uneducated mm-hmm. and just like my dad didn't pay child support or anything. So we were just fucked. And she was like scrubbing floors, like house cleaner. Damn. Um, she was an Avon lady. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever she could do. I mean, I had a paper route really young. Like seven years old. Damn, paper. is young. Which like, I understand so much now that just seemed normal back then I'm like oh cool I got a paper route this is great I need a job seven is really early yeah and then I think of a seven year old walking around by themselves giving newspapers to people yeah nowadays I walked around door to door yeah um I remember riding my skateboard sometimes or if I really wanted to do it quickly I'd ride my bike and um just go around through the neighborhood delivering papers and it was a responsibility every day I had to do it and then they overlapped with me working at the farm because when I was 10 I started working at the farm and I had to come home from school deliver the newspapers then rush off to the farm I mean 10 is early to be doing manual labor I, th- I mean I mean it's, it's crazy now and like you know my, my wife's older sister had a kid mm-hmm. um who's it like you know almost an adult now but she was like probably the first person or is the first person that I've watched grow since they were like a two year old you know Mm -hmm. and I remember watching her when she was two and I mean when she was ten and thinking there's no way you could just like put her into that farm and have her do what I did no, and, absolutely not. And or like many kids I see, and maybe even back then, like maybe you shouldn't have, but like, yeah, it I seemed mean, so normal at the time. I think I, I didn't get my first job until I was thirteen, and I was washing, and I was washing dishes. <laughs> yeah, you know. But so I remember, even just in my little microcosm, like the guys in my band didn't have jobs, and so I mean their parents must have bought their equipment for them, uh, yeah. and they were you know cars and stuff. Mm-hmm clothes whatever um whereas you know i had a sick car but i bought it i had awesome <laughs> drums fucking bought them yeah you know like all the clothes that i needed bought that shit you know and uh so i kind of just fit right in with everybody but yeah that's I had for all sure stuff but i worked for it mm-hmm. i think it's the only difference mm-hmm. um and then i mean the kid i bought my first drum set from it was almost like a throwaway thing to him. Now, I remember really buying them. I was 13, and my class was doing a Washington, D.C. trip. And I had enough money to do either the trip or to buy the drums. And I think they were 300 bucks or something. It might have been 100 bucks. I don't know. 
What brand? Rima. Um, Rima. There are these weird, shitty, never seen a Rima pre-tuned drum heads that clamped onto it. They called it a PTS, pre-tuned huh. system. Worst thing ever. It sounded like garbage. But that was my first drum set, and uh, and I got another one. Seemed like an eternity later, but probably six to eight months later. Mm-hmm. But um, I didn't go on the DC trip, and I was real bummed. And all my friends had fun and like told me all about it when they got home. And um, I bought the drums. And there's a picture of me that my mom took. And I'm such a rocker. Head-to-toe denim, like denim jacket, black t-shirt, just like shitty, like not long but not short yeah like, suburban like this rock fucking hair. bullshit like that <laughs> yeah this bullshit <laughs> um basically the rock dad haircut or whatever yes but back then I think I had like a middle part right, or something go, right. and I'm just like playing it and I remember still the beat that I played and I I air drummed for like years at this point and I just sat down and played <laughs> and I was like, I'm a drummer. You got it. Yeah. Fucking rad. Yeah. That um, must have been a, a, a glorious day for you. Oh, so, I mean, and, so awesome. And you still remember it clearly, I'm sure. I do. Yeah, I do. that's amazing. Vividly. I think having the image of that picture helps too, but mm-hmm. I can almost like smell the basement and see all the stuff in there that, you know, it's awesome. that, that it was. But um, getting back on topic a bit uh, Holliston um, it, uh, it was hard for me to tell just because I just lived like everyone else like I was saying yep. but um, I feel like it probably was an affluent town yeah and, I think and, it was um, I connected with someone recently like you know we're like friends now made, made it sort of a new friend a few years ago just because they were from Holliston mm-hmm. and I was like Wait, who's this like punk person from Holliston that I don't know? And she's like way younger than me, but it's like, what's Holliston like now? Because she was talking like she hated it and that it was like just full of like rich people or whatever. Um, and I was like, oh, that's not how I remember it at all. Because a lot of my peers we talk fondly of Holliston mm-hmm. we loved it it was like growing up in like a Norman Rockwell painting oh for sure and um that like, Main Street yeah it's still like that yeah not much has changed there I'm uh, sure they won't allow it to change yeah sure. yeah that's Keep good though. yeah it is good but um you know I lived on the outskirts near the farm but I used to ride my bike and even my skateboard into town to downtown and uh hang out with everybody mm-hmm. um it seems insane now to ride a fucking skateboard on those like winding How many roads. miles of roads you went down? It's probably two and a half to three miles. Yeah. Because the farm, I know, because when I would eventually drive there, my, mm-hmm. my odometer clicked one mile exactly. And that was a third of the way to downtown. Mm-hmm. It's three miles to get to downtown. That's nothing on a bike. No, or on a skateboard. On a skateboard? I don't know why I didn't just carry my skateboard and ride the bike. <laughs> Maybe I didn't want to be a skateboarding poser. But, uh, I skateboard all, I, you know, I used to skateboard all around Upton. And we, we used to go, we used to do probably at least five miles a day, like going yeah. between like the, uh, you know, 
the, the memorial school mm-hmm. to, to the fucking vocational school there you know valley tech yeah and shit yeah easily five miles yeah it's nothing when you're a kid no now I couldn't I can't even make it upstairs without <laughs> wheezing so yeah I remember <laughs> stopping I remember the day I stopped skateboarding um, really yeah, I, I don't remember that day I do were you good much. Uh, not really yeah I was um, terrible a lot of my friends my hometown friends went to be like semi-pro or whatever a lot of awesome skaters we had like you know backyard ramps in our mm-hmm. town and everything and uh I was uh, in between tours with Shelter. I think I had like a week and a half off. Or it might have been better than a thousand. I can't remember. So were you like 22, 23 here? Um, Let me think. Younger? Let me think. It was probably around 97, which would make me 24. Um, And uh, I was just like hanging out at my friend's house and we're at the driveway there's a skateboard there and I just mm-hmm. like skated around a little bit but I fell and fucked up my wrist and so at that point you're like if I can't do this tour that means like the guys in the band can't do the tour right. that means the promoters have to cancel stuff our booking agent has to cancel it's like people's like livelihoods and, yeah for sure you know nowadays you sound you sign contracts for that shit now right yeah yeah I mean it can be that way yeah but um I was just like shit I can't skate anymore it's That's not it. worth it to me. fuck up my livelihood yeah for sure and um that was the day I stopped skating in uh <laughs> Terry Arena's uh front yard <laughs> So what did you what did you do after shelter? I mean, what? Um, let me think. I mean, I, I got to do it chronologically, or else yeah, I forget stuff. I'm trying, but uh, so yeah, shelter. I joined that around '93, mm-hmm. right after Kingpin. Told everybody in my life, "Screw you! I'm following my dream." Ended up being the best decision that I ever I'm made. Sure. But if I had said no. The trajectory of my life would have been way different. I might still be a farmer in Hollister, or like I don't know what the hell I would have gotten. And I think a lot of people's lives probably would have been different because of that decision. Perhaps. I mean, Perhaps. look at how many bands you've been a part of. Yeah. And had a crazy influence on. Yeah. You know, and then bands that have recorded. You know, I was talking to Gold Muse here last week, and um, the, the drummer was talking about how great an experience it was recording with you. You know, saying that it totally changed his view of how recordings are or how it goes. He's like, I've had such terrible experiences, and this is the first one yeah. that was positive. I get that a lot, partly because I'm getting sort of people that are new at recording. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a drummer, um, I think what I'm seeing is that when you come to my studio, you're recording with a drummer. You know how to speak to them. And I it's like nothing's getting by me I'm hearing everything that they're doing if they're having trouble on something let's say we're doing a few takes of Mm -hmm. one song and they keep messing up a lot of times it's at the same spot and a lot of times I can walk into that room and just say let me watch you play that part you're having trouble with Mm -hmm. and a lot of times like the sticking pattern is weird or they're trying to throw in like a kick drum hit that doesn't need to be there or some things where 
I can just watch what they're doing and make a suggestion of how they're playing it. Or, oh, of course you can't play that. Your hi-hat's too low. Your arm underneath it can't get a good hit in. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and usually I can suggest a modification on what they're trying to play. That's something simpler to play. Um, but it's still having the same sonic impact and the same um, vibe for the song. Um, yeah. But it's something that they have the ability to play. So mm-hmm. I can walk in, and after five minutes, they're like nailing the take and so I think a drummer coming in having recorded somewhere else having a hard time getting a take like that um, they're coming in and having an easy time plus I am I don't know if I want to say professional drum technician but people pay me to tune their drums at recording studios I don't suck at it, you know? <laughs> so, like, I tune the drums well, the drums sound great. So even just the fact that I've got great-sounding drums available, mm-hmm. they are often playing great-sounding drums for the first time ever, you know? Yeah, And sure. guitars are easy. The sound comes from the person's amp, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a speaker. You put a mic in front of it, that's the sound. <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, there's maybe a little more to it than uh, that. Guitars are dumb. Just, I'm just trying to well, say, I'm just telling you. Well, here's what else I can say, and I'm exaggerating for sure, but, like, guitar must be fucking easy to play compared to drums. I mean, yeah. Because drums... Everybody can play guitar. There's so many guitarists. Think of how many great drummers there are. It's not a lot. Well, yeah. Options go way down. Where do you think that came from? Like, how did you become... I mean, was it playing in so many different kinds of bands, being around so many different kinds of drummers? Where where did you get this ability to just kind of pinpoint someone's, you know, issues or really... Um, Well, I think a lot of my own, like, ability just came natural to me. Mm -hmm. But, um... I think if I played a different style of music, I wouldn't have been as good. And I don't even like using the words good or bad. Like, I don't even think I'm that good. But I <laughs> can like most people have an agree. easier time of stuff yeah. than some other people, I guess. I, I don't know. I don't even know what to Well, some people that. who like, are like, oh, I don't know if I'm good, but can do. you can go out and go over to this, either of these sets right now and probably play anything you want with the utmost of ease without thinking about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I but, mean, that, that's a professional, yeah. you know. But um, uh, being in a band from day one, had a huge impact on my playing and it's all stuff I didn't realize until much much later in life and a lot I didn't realize until I had to give lessons to somebody and teach them what I do because for the first time I had to think about what mm. I did um, all the instinctive stuff I had to think oh why do I do that and so playing with loud amplifiers from day one your body just sort of figures out how to play with the loudest volume with the minimal amount of effort and so from a pretty early age I ended up uh, I guess playing more with my fingers than wrists or arms Hmm. and you know people are always like oh don't play with your arms you gotta play with your wrists and I see a lot of like hard hitters playing with their wrists because it's like you're holding like a billy club and whacking on stuff and you know, wrists will get you a very hard hit. Yeah. Um, but it lacks some finesse, um, at least for me. And I see a lot of people wailing on cymbals and cracking cymbals. Like, I never crack cymbals. 
Um, and it's because I use my thumb and index finger as kind of a pivot point. And just roll the stick. And then this, the other three fingers are doing all the work. Hmm. And so you can just kind of move your arms around the kit where you need them to be. And you're moving your fingers for the sticking. Interesting. And so that's how you play really loud and fast. Notice I didn't say hard. Yeah. Because, I mean, I guess technically it has to be hard to get volume, but it's all with, like, it's almost like the action of um, if you have a stick in your hand, you have to throw it across the room. Mm -hmm. That same finger motion. Sure. And there's some risks there, too, for sure. Yeah. But it's almost like um, I'm just throwing the sticks like that onto the head, and it's bouncing off. So the sticks are kind of doing a lot of the work. Yeah. And so just because Perpetual of... Perpetual motion. Yeah. Just because of that alone... Um, having to play fast and loud mm -hmm. um, and instinctively doing that it enabled me to play everything else like really easily smoothly I remember joking around when I started playing in slower bands like uh, Piebald and Saves the Day mm -hmm. that I wouldn't even break a sweat because like bigger venues too yeah. or like an outdoor venue like forget it I'm just cruising, like, <laughs> just looking around, having fun. I'm watching the show. Yeah, you know? interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, I remember playing uh, fast hardcore again after having some uh, time off <laughs> playing emo stuff. Sure. Because, um, yeah, the, the lineage is sort of like uh, Shelter, and then I was kind of on and off with Shelter mm -hmm. for about seven years or so. And um, I would always have a local band, which for me was um, 454 Big Block, just like kind of heavier stuff. Um, and we toured though, but I don't know, I guess we were kind of a local band. And then Get High, which was one of my favorite bands that I've done. Really? And um, That's interesting. That was really fast. I was listening to a lot of Slayer. <laughs> Being a hardcore kid, I always thought they were a little too metally and never got into them. But then something clicked, and I got mm. into Slayer. And I feel like, um, I don't know, one of my friends pointed out, I've got a similar ride cymbal sound yeah. um, with Dave Lombardo. Yeah. And I think it's because I think we both play with our fingers like that. And you get this distinctive ping when the stick is kind of doing all the work yeah and uh so and it's really even too and smooth so it's like da -da 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 -da, really fast though mm -hmm. so I don't know he pointed that out to me one time I, like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, guess I, I think thrash and hardcore have some things that they yeah I mean the speed of it yeah. is definitely similar <laughs> and the like so, some of the riffs can get a little can be similar occasionally yeah there's been a lot of uh you know Cross. crossover yeah um but uh yeah, Get High was like fun music. Um, the people in the band even still are like family to me. But instantly, it was like, these are my brothers. Awesome. And just tours were so much fun. Mm -hmm. And just whenever we weren't on tour, we would all hang out as much as we could. Uh, some of those guys lived together too. Yeah. And um, those guys all kind of grew up together. So I was like, the outsider but I never felt like an outsider I was like right in the mix with everybody but they were from the suburbs of Boston like yeah me. and uh, did you know them like you didn't know any of them just really from, like, just from shows, shows King, and stuff. kingpin shows so they I remember seeing Kevin like you know on the side of the stage and mm -hmm. those guys out in the crowd <laughs> and then like 
it wasn't until years later that I was in a, excuse me, in a band with them. It was uh, a very cool way that they asked me to be in the band. Um, I think it was Kevin that came up to me, and Greg might have been with him, but he was like, yeah, um, Alcor is one of my nicknames. So it's like, Alcor, we want you to be in our band. Here's our demo. And he gave me the demo of it, which I hadn't heard yet. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, we're either going to get Alan Cage or you or break up. (laughs) Alan Cage is like the top tier of hardcore drummers. Okay. Or even beyond hardcore. All right. Just like such great style and feel. Mm -hmm. Um, Sick drummer. Um, And... uh, they don't know Alan Cage. There's no way he was ever going to be in some like small time band from Boston. So basically they were saying, if you're not going to join our band, we're just going to break up. So I was like, wow, they think very highly of me. Sure. And that's cool. And I listened to the demo and uh, it was with Matt Kelly on, on drums, mm-hmm. who now, as many people know, is in Dropkick Murphys. But uh, he was always a sick drummer. And that demo was like the best thing I'd heard in years. So I was like, holy shit, yes, I want to do this band. <laughs> and then um, we very quickly just started writing new music together. And um, it was just fast, but it had this like groove to it and busy fills and a lot musically going on drum wise. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't like shredder stuff that didn't make sense. It was like, part of the song it's like song crafting songwriting kind of stuff but fast and busy yep um and there's just so many elements in and around that band that make it one of the favorite bands that I've done um and uh we did two albums and then kind of self-destructed <laughs> uh I, you guys I remember when you were around for sure I didn't I mean I didn't listen to you but there were I, I remember most of the people I worked with were all about those records big time you know that's very cool I just got a uh, message from somebody through Bandcamp I've remastered our second album Mm -hmm. which not a lot of people had we self-released it and then we broke up shortly afterwards and uh, put it on Bandcamp and it's just sitting there it's for free download whatever but um I got a message from some guy just like gushing about how much the band meant to him and he had no idea there was a second record and how excited he was and that means a lot to me so I wrote back and I was like oh thanks so much like that band means a lot to me and to the guys in the band and Mm -hmm. you know sort of explained the deal to him and then he wrote back again he's like oh because he didn't realize who he was emailing Oh. And so he got an email from the drummer in the band. Yeah. He was like, I don't know who's put this on here, but thank you. And so when he, he got that message from me, he wrote back, like, wow, you know, a lot of what I like about Get High is the drums. Like, he didn't seem like a musician either. He's like, yeah. oh, I can't tell you how many times I've uh, air drummed to Reflex Gun or whatever songs. Yep. <laughs> that stuff, like, even just having some impact like that on one person is enough for me, you know? And tons of people say that, but, uh... I think most musicians, especially, I mean, not necessarily on your level, but certainly on, like, people that I talk to, uh, that was... 
a major uh, drive for them. Yeah, I mean, you want people to react yeah, to it. You Otherwise, want people why to do it? enjoy the music as much as you do, you know, and that's, I think that's the end goal for everybody. There's certain people out there that think they're going to get somewhere, but, you know, ultimately, I think they just want people to enjoy it as much as they do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, you wouldn't ever play outside of your practice space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's be, not like, really for yourself. You know? No. You know, and that was that's been my thing. I've always wanted to play out live. That's that's been the kind of the payoff for me. Yeah. Always. You know, yeah. it's always fun just to be in front of somebody and hopefully they're enjoying it. At least it, half as much as I am would, would be fine with me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, do you know I mean I don't know if you really said it but like do you know why this band was so important to you like was it was it something about the time in your life or I mean it was everything just the guys the, the in, in general place in my life at the time it was a very free time for me because uh, I think I was still touring in Shelter which then kind of morphed into Better Than a Thousand mm -hmm. and so traveling around the world with this other set of best friends yeah. um, and you know doing stuff on a pretty big level and you know getting paid for it and um, coming home doing Get High and just feeling so free <laughs> like not a care world like on tour or off tour you know I had a roof over my head I could eat I had tons of friends mm -hmm. and uh, I mean that, that was that era too where the Boston hardcore scene was in this other resurgence um, you know at that point I was no longer the younger kid I was like the older kid now and so there was this influx of newer bands and the sort of youth career revival thing mm -hmm. and um I went from living in Alston to living at uh, Calumet Street, the legendary 38 Calumet Street yeah. house. And I mean, it's like a what house of hardcore kids up in Mission Hill wasn't legendary? It was like a handful <laughs> of them. But there's so much going on there, and it was such an exciting time to be in the hardcore scene in Boston. And I remember even people moving to Boston just because of the scene. Yeah. And I kind of likened it to what. Seattle might have been like in the early 90s or something but it was like this hardcore scene that was still under the radar of mm -hmm. everything but it was such and what, this was like what year was this? I mean like 97 yeah so I mean at the same time there was like a whole another scene right under your nose right where you were living yeah you know like that kind of like Boston indie math rock scene was right there I knew people who lived on that street probably two couple doors down from you yeah who were all doing that 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 stuff yeah and they had a house they all lived in yeah <laughs> and, they had, and they talk about it on this podcast saying it was like some of the best times they've ever had yeah living together in that house there's just something in the air around that time in mm -hmm. Boston living in Mission Hill crazy yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was still like slightly dangerous yeah yeah <laughs> right exactly yeah. so what what happened after that so you said it kind of imploded what, yeah do you want to I mean it just, was like musical differences and then with those guys um, going back at a young age you know with their friendship mm -hmm. um, it was a little more like brotherly you know deep-seated why then. won't you let me do this like I want to write songs or yeah. like, you know that kind of thing and um, you know just sort of stopped happening mm -hmm. and uh, you know not 
having grown up with those guys, I was a little bit left on the outside. A little bit of a mediator, which I have found myself as that kind of role in a lot of bands I've been in. Because you kind of are coming in into that yeah. dynamic. I think it's in my personality yeah. to, to sort of see both sides of things and see the big picture of a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, so uh, I've been kind of in the middle of some stuff like that. <laughs> um, but uh, Is that always a position you want to be in? Do you find I, yourself sometimes in like, I just want fuck. everyone to get along and, yeah. and, you know, not be mad at each other. Kind of a pacifist, man. You know, I mean, bands are just a hotbed for. I mean, know, they are passive aggressive bullshit. You know? Yeah, or just fully aggressive. Sure, sure. I mean, every band that I've been in, for the most part, it's all just been like, you know, just little yeah. petty fucking bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Like, just seen, seen after like being in a band for that long with these people, you know, people just gets gets old. Yeah, some bands just, you know run their course five years yeah seems to be a good number yeah you're right and it's always like it means something if you make it to put out a second album you know what I mean I agree think of all the kind of local bands or even any band they put out one record and that's the main I mean that's why I want to do this podcast because there's so many of those bands that did put out one record never got a chance to put out a second one for whatever reason but that they're awesome but they're so great yeah, yeah. you know yeah. and no one remembers them yeah and that's why I wanted to do that um that's cool so what did you do after that um let's see I think better than a thousand was still doing some stuff and then Shelter started playing again as well but sometimes I had to say no to the shelter stuff. I, I really did kind of a weird thing where when I was young and I first joined shelter, um, after the first tour, I had like proven myself or whatever. And, um, you know, we all got along great, liked each other a lot. And uh, they're like, you're in the band, full member, one quarter of everything, you know? Yeah. Which is crazy and very generous of them to do like um, and they were young too they were in their 20s still mm -hmm. and um, they were like yeah we'll just give you some responsibilities though and Ray was like you're in charge of the van and I was like that's perfect I'm basically a mechanic anyways <laughs> so I did all the van maintenance I drove on all the tours mm -hmm. um, until we got our own drivers and stuff but like we had this nice. big blue van with a white cap huge uh, Dodge Ram van. I remember driving that thing around. We had a trailer on it. It was like a huge thing. And I'm like, you know, I'm feeling like an adult, but like I'm a 19 year old, 20 year old kid at the wheel of this big thing in charge of getting this band to the next headlining show. Mm -hmm. um, big responsibility. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it just felt normal at the time. Sure. Um, but, um, yeah, we did that and maintained for a little bit, but then I quit the band. It was a real confusing time for me. Um, I was still with that uh, girlfriend that we got our first apartment so at. So she stuck around. And Well, I mean, what was it, maybe a year or something of, yeah. you know, doing that first tour to when we broke up. But okay. it was like, during that time, I was like, guys I'm gonna quit just like the stress from like having her get all weird when I was on tour mm -hmm. and like trying to track me down and shit 
and um, I remember she ran up like a six hundred dollar phone bill, which was so much money to us. That's a lot, yeah. Still uh, trying to call around Europe, trying to find me on tour before <laughs> the internet or anything. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, I used to write like letters and shit mm-hmm. <laughs> and mail them home, um, and uh, yeah, came back home to that and just like it was kind of a bad scene, but like. The shelter guys, I remember them coming and staying at our shitty apartment in Framingham. We would practice at my mom's house in Holliston, because she still let me use the basement. To like, <laughs> the shelter guys were at my mom's house, <laughs> full on, like, at their most, like, Krishna, like, you know, the robes, everything. Really? Wow. Yeah. And my mom's like, who are these fucking crazy people with my son? You Is know? that the peak of her not understanding what you're doing? Like, it's definitely the peak of her not understanding. <laughs> yeah. But, like, she never really understood it. Yeah. But, uh, like, um, we were writing for the Matra album, mm-hmm. which was maybe their biggest record. Yeah. Um, and then uh, did some more touring, and then I quit. Cause I was a fucking idiot. <laughs> and, um, then, uh, seems like you made a lot of great decisions though. I, I mean, mean, I love my life and I love how it has turned out. So mm-hmm. I don't regret anything yeah. really. But, um, then, uh, shortly after broke up with the girlfriend anyways, mm-hmm. moved into the city, moved into this like apartment with like a whole bunch of friends. Um, started like, I think that's when I did 454 big block. And then, uh, Shelter I had to hire someone to do the mantra album. They got Dave Desenzo on that. And then uh called on me for some more touring. But then this time it was like, Oh, how much money do you want? We're gonna pay you like a salary for the tour or something. Wow. And I was like, Oh, I'm not like a band member now, so like I kinda of fucked myself, <laughs> you know. But then uh you know, I had to say no to some other tour. I think I got Mackie for a while mm-hmm. and uh, a couple other random people here and there. But I would always do the tours when I could. Yeah. But I, at one point, after Mantra came out and the band was doing pretty well, um, their manager called me up. And uh, I was working retail um, of all places at the Gap in the stock room. Interesting. One of my hometown Holliston friends was like... So at the Natick Mall or Straight out of uh, Reality Bites. Yeah. Like, need a job? Come work for me. I think, yeah. <laughs> and um, being a uh, former farmer with that work ethic, yeah. right away they are like, go to the stock room. Yeah. Do your thing sure. in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, um, the way I remember it is I only popularized this, but... Someone told me that I no Al you invented it this way to fold denim that really um, <laughs> sat straight in the shelves mm-hmm. and I worked at the Natick Mall the Gap there they call it the Natick Flip because <laughs> you fold the jeans you put this extra flip in with the legs and so right where the the fold is it faces the front mm-hmm. there's extra material there oh. so each stack was like a stack of eight or ten or something like that it's like a brick and it would just stay that way all day long you know it wouldn't like sink down or whatever hmm. and they're like we're gonna do this for all of the stores <laughs> you got a fucking raise for that shit I did not <laughs> you did not we're not even a bonus no not. fuck that I'm just like cool we'll take that idea from you yeah no, um, but sound, it sounds like, like corporate, corporate job like corporate I don't fucking care I've got mm-hmm. no ego about that but um the manager called me 
at the gap there. I remember being on the phone in the stockroom. He's like, yes, um, what's it going to take for you to join the band? You're like, yeah, the guys did tour with Mackie. Like, he wears leather shoes. Like, they hate that. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I was like a vegan yeah, yeah, yeah. forever, you know? Right. Like, those guys are vegetarians. And, uh, you know, they just had some, like, things to say about him or whatever. But anyways, he's like, we're prepared to offer you, like... It seemed like an astronomical amount at the time. It was like something like, yeah, we'll give you $700 a week just as your salary. Mm-hmm. And then when you're on tour with the band, it'll be 900 a week or something like that. And this is in the 90s. Damn. And I'm in my early 20s. And I should have been just That's like, pretty good now. Yes. Yes, I will do that. 100%. I'm quitting my job right now. I would have just but, uh, thrown the phone down. I was I was still doing 454 Big Block uh-huh. and just really fucking loved doing that band mm-hmm. and the guys in the band. And um, I mean, I feel like in every band I've been in, I've made like brother type friends. And it's probably like that for anyone in any band, but... I don't think so. Maybe not, but <laughs> I guess I'm lucky. No, I think, I, yeah, I think you I are. I truly love all these people, even still, even people I haven't seen in years and years. Um, I still think of them as, like, family. Um, and so... It's amazing, I, considering the amount of bands you've been in, for sure. I can't. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean... But, I, I mean, when you think of the band members of each band... If you could do that, like they're all awesome people. So yeah. I mean, maybe I just got lucky. Um, but anyways, I fucking turned all that down because I was like, I like four forty four big block. I'm gonna stay local and do this band from here, build it off the ground. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, we're going on tour with uh, uh, Bloodlet, like national tour. Like let's keep touring. But like the band kind of fell apart. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, a lot of violence with that band. <laughs> Oof. Um, but um, then, you know, they sheltered and called me again, and I would tour with them again. And, and the last tour I did was in 2000. Um, the tour was off the when 20 Summers Pass album came out. Mm-hmm. But I, I never played on their albums because I was like in and out. And, you know, did you I never that? say no to a, no to a tour because yeah. I loved touring. And, and that's where. It was all at, and I, I love creating and writing music, but I feel like I became the go-to guy for if you need a drummer mm-hmm. to be in your band, you call Alcor, you know. Yeah. And um, so I was getting those calls all the time, and and it just I've, built up from you doing these tours over like especially Shelter mm-hmm. and. and that kind of stuff yeah you just got a reputation for that yeah I remember I think Madball was on the table but I, I was doing Piebald mm-hmm. I just joined Piebald and that Rama Mayo the uh, owner of uh, or co-owner I guess of uh, Big Wheel Records mm-hmm. he put out Get High lived with us at uh, 38 Calumet um, he put out the Piebald Records and he was like Al I just put out a record for these guys John their drummer quit he doesn't want to tour anymore they're gonna break up I'm gonna lose my shirt man this album just came out like please join the band and I was like I don't know man like piebald they're not that good 
and, and I remember them. I've Ouch. got a similar memory memory yeah. with them and with Converge because when they first started playing, they were terrible. Converge. Yeah, and like same with Piebald. They're terrible to a guy that was like, you know, appreciative of like excellent playing. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, I. Uh, it's like Bible, but I listened to the record and I was like, even the record's kind of sloppy, but I, I liked it. There's something attractive yeah. about it, and people love those records for Christ's sakes. And I people learned to once yeah. I like got into it. I was like, oh wait. I get what they're doing. Yeah. Pie ball is great. And it's uh, kind of something endearing about the, like the kitschiness of it. Like, yeah. you know, that's what people liked about it. Yeah. But I agreed to, I mean, for me, I was trying them out, but like yep. they were trying me out too. Sure. And, uh, I was like, oh, I'll check it out. And so I, uh, got picked up by them in, uh, their yellow school bus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And, uh, we drove up to Andover to Andy's parents' house because they were still practicing there. And um, I think I used whatever drum set was up there mm-hmm. and uh, practiced with them um, and just really liked the guys in the band because they grew up together. They were like Same sort family. Of and yeah. for me to just join in with that, excuse me, I was like, I fit right in, I felt. And... Um, the songs live took on a whole different personality and energy when we all played them together and I was like this is not like the record this is like way better a lot more energy yeah and I was like of course I'm gonna do this band with you guys and so I did the band with them for about two years um I I was on the uh um rock revolution record Mm -hmm. and uh wrote some other stuff with them too and just was really a part of the band and you know arranging the songs with everyone as any drummer does mm-hmm. and then uh that's something and, about you that you can go into all these situations and you're immediately or but I love music yeah. and not any one style um you know I definitely have the mindset of you know the, the punk rock and DIY attitude and everything um but um you know, musically, I'm kind of all over the place. I, I, I like almost any style of music, but only the good things of it. Mm-hmm. I'm not like, I'm a hardcore kid. I like every hardcore band and only hardcore bands. It was never like that. It's like, I like the good stuff. Well, it's great that you can admit that Piebald was not great. I mean, I didn't think they were. No, they were not. But then there's something about it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been popular. They were huge. Um, but then, uh, so yeah. Piebald broke up right after like this tour we did. Mm-hmm. Aaron kind of lost his mind. And they were on and bit. off for a long time, right? Well, not really. No. It was like, I mean, I guess in later years they might have been. Yeah. But um, back then it was, you know, full on Piebald all the time. I mean, we toured full time. And then the band broke up. And, uh, you know, that's when I moved to California with my wife. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I thought that was it. There's so much kind of like bad energy going on there that I didn't see the band getting back together. And it wasn't even that long. I was in California still. I got a call, I think from Aaron. He was like, Al, we've been like kind of jamming again with John and we want to do the band again, but he can't really tour still. So, I mean, do you want to do the band? And I was like, yeah, totally, man. And 
I was at such a different place from them because I was used to being, you know, in like kind of bigger budget stuff where flying in and out for rehearsals or like tours, whatever. Yeah. Totally made sense. It was normal. But I was like, yeah, let me know when to be there. I'll come, we'll rehearse. Like, when are we writing a new album? Awesome. Let me know. I'll be there. I'll just live there for a month or something, you know? And he's like, yeah, I mean, we kind of want you to live here, you know? And I was like, oh, but it's no big deal. I'll just, you know, it'll work out. But then, like, he's like, I don't know. And um, he called me, like, two or three days later. I was like, yeah. I think we're actually going to get Luke to do it because he lives around here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a little hurt because, like, I love those guys, you yeah. know? And I was like, oh, man, I don't think they understand that I could do this, and I can't fault them for that. No. So that's fine. Yeah. I want to be part of it, but... Whatever. Was it just that they wanted someone constantly around whenever they... I mean, I think they just weren't thinking on the bigger scale mm-hmm. they were like oh you, when you do a band you all live together you know yeah <laughs> which is maybe sort of like an archaic way of thinking of it I mean bit. it's a romantic way of thinking of it yeah it's ideal sure it's nice I don't know if it's ideal well, it can be like yeah like you were yeah, saying like maybe right. I think you said earlier you're kind of a romantic or whatever yeah. like, <laughs> sure and I, I I definitely had like when I was living in that rock house mm-hmm. you know I was like so into you know there was a comes up a lot the rocket house in Louisville like where like all these they just they all they just play music and yeah. it was all DIY shit and I was like oh I want to live in that something like that yeah and then I finally got it sort of yeah. and it was not <laughs> all cracked up to be yeah <laughs> you know I mean maybe I'm just a fucking idiot and I don't notice all the shitty stuff but like you know, I think maybe you just hung out with better people than I did I mean I don't <laughs> that's know. probably it I don't know but uh I tend to be a pretty positive person yeah yeah um but I have every reason to be sure <laughs> um but yeah with the piebald thing not happening and me kind of floating around the west coast not really doing anything exciting um when uh I did come back east and do American Nightmare I remember at one point thanking those guys hmm. I was like you guys fucking saved me because the vibe of those shows exactly reminded me of Kingpin shows. That same energy, and I had been longing for that. And even though I was playing in popular bands and stuff was similar, that like missing ingredient that I don't even know what it is was missing. And, Interesting. and those uh, AN shows were like the same like craziness, the same vibe, the same enthusiasm the band and the crowd because it seems like you've had like a good you know relatively great experience and you said that you feel like all these people all these bands are brothers but there was something about this particular situation that you, you just, just didn't have any other bands which is so crazy well not so much like personality wise mm-hmm. but just the 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 fan band dynamic okay um it was a little just, I mean intimate different I mean it was intimate with I mean Piehall for sure yeah. saves the day definitely um but like for hardcore shows like shelter shows they didn't have that same magical thing no even though the shows could be crazy or whatever or uh high energy whatever you want to call it um 
there's something maybe maybe I did romanticize about the Kingpin stuff in that way because it was like wow I can't believe that my band is huge you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know there's just something magical with that I mean different different types of music have different scenes and even Shelter is a different kind of hardcore band from mm. you know, a Kingpin or a uh, American Nightmare yeah but I think the American Nightmare while being musically different from Kingpin it still is having the same kind of uh, vibe same emotions mm-hmm. coming back and forth band and audience or whatever yeah um, and uh, I had missed that and missed being in that kind of band because I didn't live near the shelter guys I was obviously yeah, right. commuting to New York and Philly mm-hmm. for that DC a little bit and uh, just living in the same town with the guys like going out after practices together that kind of thing I think I longed for that so do you think that's what Piebald was looking for when they when they were like you gotta come back here I guess you're right yeah I guess you're right they just saw it from a, the same perspective yeah, just through a different lens, maybe yeah, on the other side of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're looking through a two-way mirror or something yeah, like that. Yeah, but hmm. yeah, then when uh, when American Nightmare broke up, I think it was 2005 or six, maybe. Um, I was like kind of lost all over again, but only for a very short amount of time. Um, Tim from American Nightmare started this band called Bars and they had a full lineup but they didn't have a drummer for a little bit mm-hmm. and um, they had some shows booked so I played I think one or two shows with them but um, the guys in the band the bass player and the other guitarist Matt and Adam remember just I think it was the three of us that were there on time for practice and we were just jamming on Deep Purple we were doing like space trucking interesting and Deep Purple is a big part of my you know musical DNA yeah but it's not they're not like a Led Zeppelin where it's like this universal thing you know Mm -hmm. uh, with musicians Um, but it seemed just as important of a band with them as it was with me and we all the three of us bonded on that and I only played that one or two shows at bars but then the three of us started Blood Horse and it was based off of mutual <laughs> appreciation of Deep Purple and also The Who. Um, really? I don't hear The Who. I definitely Deep well, Purple we did, for sure. We did a Who cover. Did you? On our, uh, our oh. albums. It was an instrumental okay. called Sparks. Oh. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll if, admit I don't know The Who very well. Yeah, and I mean a lot of people just thought that was our own song. song. Probably is what and, I thought at yeah. the time. Um, but... Uh, love that band and I mean those two are like fucking maniacs but like we both connected musically in a very deep way Mm. and uh, we didn't hang out so much because we were all kind of you know doing our separate things at that time and uh, Adam ended up moving to New York and he was commuting up and that kind of started to kill the band a little bit lost some momentum with that Mm. and then uh they started doing um, another band with Kevin Baker, actually, um, that wasn't ours. Um, uh, All Pigs Must Die. 
I remember them saying, hey, Al, can you do, like, that really fast double kick drum stuff? And I was like, I haven't played double kick in years, but I can bust it out again and practice enough mm-hmm. to do it or whatever. And, yeah. And that's a conversation that I wouldn't have remembered had they not started playing with Ben from Converge and doing All Pigs Must Die, and it's all fast stuff like that. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's why they asked me. They were starting up that band. They kind of, like, did it secretively. Mm. And then, um, you know, Blood Horse started being less active. Mm-hmm. And we were just trying to get a record done. With, you know, I refer to those as some of the best songs I've written or co- you know, co-written with I did great. in my life. Yeah. But unreleased ones. Really? We... Have some I hear stuff those. partially recorded, and like these ones that no one has heard are like I think of them as like some of the best. Shit Get those guys to come to your studio and finish well, them. Here's the thing: whenever we see each other, we're like, "Yeah, we should finish those recordings." Like, then, we have every intention of like doing something still, and um, we just never go about it. And then like Matt had a kid, now I've got kids. Mm-hmm. Things have changed a little bit. Um, I was time. introduced to that record by my wife at that time she was not my wife okay. uh, Jessica Rice oh no way dude yeah. I fucking love Jessica she yeah. used to come to our shows all the time yeah. So yeah she she's great I married that lady uh, congratulations two years ago um, yeah she and she she's like and we were just work, we were just like co-workers at the time and she's like I think you're gonna like this band it's by a couple of my friends cool and yeah I, I went to a couple of your shows for sure well when I was in a band at the same time uh-huh. that had like a similar style you know kind That's of songs awesome. yeah it was fun um, definitely should finish those songs there's definitely there's some people out there that would love to hear those yeah I mean we have some stuff that is tracked drums and bass and then you know, Adam's in New York, mm. getting him up wasn't easy, and I don't know, we kind of have stopped talking about it, but like, I feel like every like year or two, one of us is doing a group text, hey, we should finish those songs. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it, but it would be so easy, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, have, you have everything there. Yeah, maybe I'll hit them up again. You should. One last time. But like, I go through like weird things with that band because I got kind of bitter about it because I was like we have all this like awesome material and I can't get those guys to like come anymore yeah. to like it's tough when you're it. it's tough when you're invested so yeah. much and then the other people are kind of like apathetic yeah, they bit. started All Pigs Must Die and that's very exciting and of course with that lineup it's going to be crazy popular For sure. from day one you know mm-hmm. and which it was and it was, uh, yeah. that, that kind of left me in the dust and I'm like Man, do you know how much stuff I've said no to in the meantime while we were doing Blood Horse? And now I'm not the guy that you call anymore. Yeah, that sucks. Because I've been like, Blood Horse is my thing. I'm going to build it from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've got these like musical soulmates with me and we're all going to do this thing. And I don't know. I think we just had different ideas of what we wanted out of the band or something. Yeah, that's tough. And I was like real ambitious and like, I don't know. I think sometimes. I've, like, publicly said too much stuff with, like, no filter uh, and has <laughs> shot us in the foot, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh, I don't know. I, I miss playing with those guys, for sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we may play again. At the very least, I would like to finish up the stuff that we have drum tracks for. You should. Um, 
but uh, anyone that I know likes that band that's like been in a position where I'm like with my iPod with our demos it's done mm-hmm. or like at the studio or I just bring stuff up and I play it for them they're like wow this stuff's great you should do it I like, bet I wish <laughs> but uh, yeah during that time it was kind of dark for me but I, I was getting busier with the studio so like that was kind of not even taking over at that point but it was taking up a lot of like you know real estate in my mind mm-hmm. and uh, then uh Wes called on me to do some uh, touring in Cold Cave and so I kind of switched gears and I was playing live shows with a click track um, with uh, you know backing backing tracks and uh, that was exciting to me because I remember being a kid playing with the radio I would turn on a pop radio station headphones on Mm -hmm. and just whatever song that came up play that song pop stuff you know mm-hmm. and I was like oh these people definitely play to a metronome so I'm playing to a metronome yeah. and I was like I can do it you know <laughs> and I'd always kind of fantasized about playing something a little more electronic really and um, never had any opportunity never thought I would and so when I got a chance to do that um, I don't think they had had a lot of experience with a live drummer they they had someone for a little bit but when we were working through the backing tracks I was like take all of the percussion out there's still more stuff and then I got a uh, like drum brain thing with like three pads and I was like I'm gonna trigger all of those sounds and like actually play them so I had a real drum set of like kick snare rack tom floor tom no ride symbol because none of the songs had ride hmm. in place there was a tambourine so there was like a couple little tambourine hits one song that was all really fast 16ths on that which we did a video for I had to play really really fast 16th notes on a tambourine for like it's insane 10 hours that's tough and like it was so fucking hard. It was one of the hardest things that, to this day, I've ever had to do. There's just some dumb drumming thing. Still. Controlling a tambourine is tough enough. But it was like... <laughs> on a tambourine for like eight <laughs> hours. <laughs> it's insane. Um, but, uh... Yeah, then yeah, I had those electronic things, and uh, that was so interesting to me and, and um, fulfilling and fun. And, you know, just like waiting for everyone to be ready instead of clicking off I'm hitting the space bar <laughs> there's like a little guy in my ear that goes one two three four and then we start the song and uh, <laughs> playing with the click and the backing tracks and uh, doing those like electronic pads and incorporating that into the mm-hmm. beat um, in my mind and I think I did achieve it I was like okay I want to play stuff in reality, that's too complicated for one human to play. You know, I want to be the guy that's playing that. And so I was just trying to do all that stuff. And I did, and it was awesome. It's crazy. Fully gratifying to me. And then uh, he went on to do just uh, only backing tracks for a while and moved from New York to L.A. So I couldn't really do anything with him at that point. Yeah. But... um, 
there was this one show we did. Um, it was in LA and it was in a big hall and the vibe of the show was so crazy and intense that it felt like a hardcore show. It felt like an AN show. Mm-hmm. And with me and Wes, like, I remember, and I don't know if we even ever talked about it, but from my point of view, I remember this show, no, we did talk about it, looking at him at this one point and just, we shared this, like, look where I was like, he's thinking what I'm thinking. This feels like a fucking American Nightmare show, you know? And then, I don't know if it was backstage or if it was just some time later, but we talked about how it felt like that. Yeah. And then, maybe a month or a couple months, I don't know, some time after that, um, he was calling around about, hey, would you guys want to do American Nightmare again? <laughs> or like, play a show or two? Yeah. And uh, I feel like that may have inspired that, um, you know, the reunion of American mm-hmm. Nightmare. Um, but that's my perspective of it. It seems like you have these, uh, from what you told me, it seems like you have these really great connections with people. He, somehow something about you in particular I mean maybe it's one sided where I just like them <laughs> no. yeah I don't know I mean and then you're saying like you have this you know this great experience but also I think it transcends to you know recording maybe this is what you were that's what you you know ended up doing this because that's you're good at relating to people that way yeah yeah maybe I mean it, it kind of goes back to being the sort of like mediator in the bands mm-hmm do you like that type of control like that sort of like figuring things out like the delineation of like I definitely am a problem solver yeah I love uh, you know even just fixing broken things Mm. like physical things you know but uh, you're like kind of like a cleaner yeah you got me and you're just like this is what we're gonna this is what needs to happen yeah fix this fix that yeah but um which is a very gratifying thing (laughs) yeah yeah it is um, with the studio, um, once I had been recording for you know, five, six years, I was good enough to confidently record other bands mm-hmm. and not feel like it would suck. And then that confidence has just been gaining and gaining since then. I think it's been about 10 or 12 years that I've been recording at that house. I think we got it in 2007. Let's say 2008, mm-hmm. I was recording bands. So yeah, I guess it's been 11 years or something. And um, my style is different from most modern recordists. I'm not into editing. I don't want everything to sound perfect. That's not my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot comes from me as a drummer being able to play full takes of stuff and um, coming still from that generation where you just had to fucking play your part, you know? There was no going back and fixing it. Yeah. And, you know, you can do some punch-ins or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You can cut tape. Um, But uh, I'm still trying to just capture what the band is all about. Um, I have a friend that also records bands. I mean, I have many of them, but one in particular. um, He's sort of I mean he's not all in the box where he has no outboard gear but he has like limited outboard gear and I've seen him post stuff 
on Instagram about you know his recording sessions and stuff, and it's all just like waveforms on a computer, and <laughs> you know if I post something, it's like reels of tape spinning around yep. and like machines and shit and I'm like that is a totally different work day from me and maybe this sounds a little arrogant it's not meant to be but if you're just you know clicking a mouse and moving little visual pieces Locks. of stuff around are you a recording engineer anymore it's more of a video game or something and there's skill involved hundred yeah. percent, but it's different, vastly different from oh, what I do. Yeah, um, and so it's almost like it's not even the same thing, and it's something I'm not interested in doing. So to me, like I don't want to change what I do. I like doing yeah. analog, <laughs> and I don't think you have to. I mean, there's people. Obviously more than enough people that are doing that now I mean I'm busier now than I want to be I, I totally fucked up my my wife is on maternity leave because we just had a kid mm-hmm. um, it's just 12 weeks of no work yeah and so um, as a relatively new dad what I had done for our first kid was okay Sarah you go back to work I'll take I'm care I'm going to take care of the kid and I'll just do the studio on weekends full days on weekends and then if there's any stuff that spills over I'll do it on weeknights mm-hmm. and that fully worked and I've been at first it was like busy most weekends and then it was um, booked every fucking weekend and many weeknights and so I started booking stuff for full days during the week while she's on maternity leave thinking it's a little baby. There's not much for the dad to do. Like, I don't have breast support. You, know? <laughs> you need to be um, there for support, right? I do. I yeah. do. And I totally fucked up because I have not been there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been eating away at me. And Sarah is a fucking champ. I know it affects her, but not in a way that she's showing. Because she's mm-hmm. just like fucking superwoman and yeah. just able to do all this shit. And we have a very good like friend network of close friends that are hanging around the house and helping out too which is like invaluable and I try to thank them in a genuine way but like I don't think they fully know how much I appreciate it and think (laughs) about it I don't know if if I could ever convey that Um, but um, I booked the studio out and it's just been oh yeah okay I can fit you here and then you know you get another booking like okay I'll fit you here and then oh we didn't finish Mm-hmm. still have some maternity leave, leave time left and I've been working like day upon day upon day upon day and I've actually realized the dream that I thought I had I fucking don't want at all <laughs> I was like oh it'd be great if I had like a separate like like a commercial studio spot somewhere yeah and um I could book bands every day I could work every day it'd be great I don't want to work every day. 10 hour, 12 hour no, days every day. You're 45 Fuck now. You, yeah. You know, you're going to be 50 and then you be like, yeah, but it's like fun stuff that I'm sure. doing, but got a family. at this point, there's a lot more in my life now. And I mean, I fucking miss my kid. Like my yeah. two and a half year old, he's like my best friend, little friend. And mm-hmm. I miss not hanging out like leisurely all day with him, you know, which is maybe selfish. Most 
parents have to work mm -hmm. and their kids go to daycare. We're very fortunate where that's not the case. Because yeah. I don't know. I feel like I've made my own life how I want it. Like I haven't really compromised with no, anything. You certainly um, seem, And yeah. so people that live like that, their lives just end up how they want them. And so I've got this easy life where I have this fun, awesome job of recording cool bands. Mm -hmm. um, I do my own bands when I can, and I see my family all the time. Yeah, it's nice. The past twelve weeks, I totally <laughs> fucked up. Um, but yeah, we're nearing the end of that, so like, my work schedule is kind of going back to normal. But and um, then you're gonna like what? Are you gonna like take a break or you think? I mean, there's no break. It's just going back to weekends and mm -hmm. weeknights. But um, you know, not a lot of bands are trying to do the weeknight thing. No. Um, so it's more that's the spillover of mm -hmm. like, crap, we didn't book enough time. How can we finish this? We have to book three months from now. Like, well, I can fit you in on some weeknights. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. Um, but uh, it's been so busy these past like twelve weeks or so um, that I've been really missing drumming. Um, I had started this solo project called mm -hmm. Chrome Over Brass. Um, yeah, I remember that that first record. Yeah, I really, really liked that. Yeah. Um, when Blood Horse stopped doing stuff, mm -hmm. I was kind of bitter about it because I was like, you know, as I said, I don't yep. high hopes for it and everything. Sure. And then got kind of busy doing the Cold Cave thing, but I um quit working any other kind of job in 2011 um, I was doing like the gap here and there between tours for like a whole decade that must have been liberating yes but um, I think my last stint with them was around like two, that, 2002 American Nightmare that's mm -hmm. when I stopped doing that and then I started working for the guys in Get High they had uh, Greg and Kevin two of the guys in the band they bought out um, a uh, bike courier took over his business grew it out to be a bunch of riders and then they had just started doing car deliveries hmm. um, I remember when Sarah and I were still living in our RV I got a call from Greg he was like ow um, our driver stopped showing up is there any way you can come downtown to like drive for us oh wait no wait I'm fucking up the timeline they called to ask if I could do like a box delivery mm -hmm. and like we showed up with the RV and like <laughs> loaded up with some boxes and like drove some like boxes from some law firm to another one and like down in the loading dock like loading out <laughs> in our home in a, in a Winnebago yeah and then um, I think it was probably a year or two after that that they called like our driver stopped showing up yeah come downtown uh, meet us at Winthrop Square we got a car for you with packages we'll give you a two way radio and you know before uh, you know you got a phone with uh, maps on it and stuff mm -hmm. it just had an atlas and they're like if anyone can do this you can <laughs> you're like a tour dog like back then if you're on tour you drive around and like I mean, there were times where you didn't know where the hell this, like, cryptic club was. Mm -hmm. You'd literally drive to some town and look for punk kids 
and ask them, hey, where's the show tonight? <laughs> All right, we'll give you a ride. Hop in. Just show us where yeah. it is. Like that kind of thing. So, like, finding the place is, like, it had become this skill. So, they're yeah. like, yeah, Al, you got this. And so, like, I totally thrived with that. And my driving skills got, like, insane. Just, like, beyond cab driver. Where were like, you driving? What kind of car? Uh, at first, it was a... Um, Oh, Mazda I want to say RX-7 but I think that's like a sporty kind of car yeah, that's it was kind sporty. of a sporty little thing yeah stick shake nice I took out the back seat to fit more boxes in there mm-hmm. you'd fill up the trunk I had a um a bike rack on the back that we put a two wheeler on like a hand truck on <laughs> so we were doing all these boxes some fucking inventive like shit there yeah <laughs> and um then uh actually when gas prices went crazy mm-hmm. i was like hey you guys and this is independent of what Pybalt was doing i didn't know they were doing this i was like we can get a diesel car and run on veggie oil and they were like all right here's a budget make it happen i got a mercedes diesel station wagon converted it to run on vegetable oil sweet we got a couple of clients our office was in Chinatown and uh, it's a perfect place for to get and oil from yeah we, we just like we became the waste oil uh, disposal place in these places and it was like they knew what was going on mm-hmm. it was kind of like you know on a handshake mutual yeah and we were like well there's all the sediment that happens in your like 55 gallon drum yeah we can skim off the top, but then once that sediment stuff gets enough, you got to call someplace for real or whatever. Yeah, again, dumped out, and so um, they they gave me a pretty substantial raise that year, um, and uh, that was huge. And they paid for me to build a shed in the backyard. I was like, I need a filtering station. They're like buy the materials I just like designed it on paper then built a shed in my backyard but it's like I built it like a house it's like a 10 by 10 house mm-hmm. <laughs> um, with cute little windows foundation and stuff and yeah. well I didn't do the foundation because I didn't want to get into pouring concrete because oh, okay. then technically taxes and shit. you have to get a um, building permit but you can build up to a 120 square foot structure without pulling a permit or anything mm-hmm. so I made it 10 by 10 it's 120 square feet yeah and um my day consisted of doing deliveries and then also getting veggie oil and we had such a bad system I was literally getting um like uh those five gallon paint buckets mm-hmm. like a homer bucket from Oliva <laughs> scooping those I say, you didn't pump it or anything like that? No, we didn't have a pump. But even on an electric pump, it can sometimes take longer than mm-hmm. it would take to scoop. Plus, in the winter, that stuff is the consistency of butter. Yeah. So you had to literally scoop it. Sometimes you'd find, like, a dead rat in it or something. <laughs> so, like, I'd get, like, a whole wagon full of those buckets, bring it home, filter it. Mm-hmm. In the winter, you had to melt it with, like, a heating wand, get it hot enough put it through these like we call them sock filters mm-hmm. um, these big industrial food grade filters filter it and make our own fuel mm-hmm. and you know I would just like pour that when it, whenever I had to refuel I'd stop by the house 
grab a bucket, pour it in, go out, do more deliveries. Awesome. Um, then I, I bought a diesel van. But you smelled great. I mean, I actually wore, anytime I had to deal with that stuff, I wore a jumpsuit. I would get these military jumpsuits from the Army Navy store for like 12 bucks a piece. Just wear them until I got dirty and buy another one. And uh, so I managed to stay remarkably clean. But the vehicle itself, especially that first wagon, started getting pretty smelly. Um, <laughs> and that thing, we drove that into the ground. And um, we ended up getting a sedan. And I think we had the two going for a while. And then when the wagon broke, we had the sedan. And then my, we liked it so much, my wife got that same Ben's sedan. And we ran hers on veggie oil. I had a diesel Ford van, and I was running that on veggie oil. Shit. And, uh, you know, this is when diesel prices were like five bucks a gallon. Yeah. Gas, I think, was like four. Mm -hmm. And um, just sort of like one by one, the cars either got crashed or died off. Died off. Uh, and then gas prices went down too. But um, I quit doing that job um, to do Cold Cave. Because I was getting kind of burnt out on the driving and everything. Driving in Boston, no good. Yeah, and it, it had been getting noticeably worse from when I first started doing that until I ended. It's worse now. Yeah, it's so bad. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was a little early for me to not have a job as far as how busy the studio was. Mm -hmm. So I would come home from tour, and yeah, I made some money from the tour. I would just barely scrape by with whatever studio work I had. There might be a month with like one weekend booked or like maybe a month would have a few weekends. The next month would have none. Mm -hmm. um, I remember selling like some snare drums to keep you know, things going. My mortgage. Like my wife has a great job. She easily could be like, oh, I'll help you out this month. Uh, I'll help you out this month. But I never needed that. I was like, I'll sell a fucking snare drum. Yeah. Or like, you know, I don't need to go out, you know, or whatever. And um, made that work out totally, but just barely. And then um, the studio started. When did you realize you could just, just, I mean, I realized that probably like, was it scary? I, guess, I mean, it wasn't scary. I tend to just not worry about stuff. Mm -hmm. I was telling one of my friends my retirement plan was always just to be homeless. Jeez. It's like, I'm a pretty resourceful guy. Sure. Like, I mean, and, you know, growing up on a farm, um, I, I mean, I, I half joke about this, but I'm like, oh, stay urban. There's tons of food around, really. Mm -hmm. um, you don't even have to get that crazy. You can find some little nook to live in. I could totally do that. And I could grab a fucking goose off the river. <laughs> and cook it up. Clean it. Cook it. Like, I learned that on the farm, you know. And, uh, I mean, it was a big, like produce farm we had an apple orchard mm -hmm. um, but also turkey farm oh yeah and uh, I mean my last two years of working there I was vegetarian mm -hmm. and so it was like a very big like conflict for me um, but 
I've grown up working there. So yeah. it's like beyond just like, oh, I'll just get a different job. It was like my family and everything and everything that I knew. Yeah. Um, so in a way, shelter saved me from that when they asked me to do the tour. <laughs> but um, yeah, then I went vegan when I was like 21 or something. My wife went vegan the same year as me, independently of me, because we didn't yeah. know each other. Right. So it's very forward thinking to you for sure especially at that time yeah it seemed like natural especially in the hardcore scene tons oh, of yeah, vegans yeah. and vegetarians and that's straight edge stuff I, I, I was in LA at this like uh, it's like a uh, German sausage restaurant and uh, they have like a couple of vegan options all the time mm-hmm. and I went there once with friends that ate meat and I was like wow this place is like great but the, the buns weren't vegan or something like that. And then, uh, I, I, so I went back again, um, just like last year. Like, oh, we just got vegan buns. You're going to be the first customer to have a vegan bun. And I was like, really? That's crazy. Like, yeah, how long have you been vegan? And I'm like, oh, let's see, about 23 years or, you know, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they were like, oh my God, you were like the first vegan. Because <laughs> I forget, it's like trendy now and it's like mainstream people have heard of it. Yep. But to them, it's a new thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so to some norm to hear about someone being vegan for 23 years, their mind is blown, you know? But it seems very normal to me. <laughs> uh, I'd heard about veganism, but yeah, being vegan, especially in a small town in Massachusetts, Mm-hmm. It's not easy. Yeah. You know, especially when you said your mom was struggling and yeah. I'm sure it was tough yeah. sometimes. Dude, in the 90s. Oh my God. It was so bad. Like, yeah. touring? Couldn't eat. Yeah, what did you do? Yeah. Um, you had to get creative. I'd go into supermarkets sometimes, you know, like in the Midwest and shit. There's nothing, but sometimes you'd find like. They like a supermarket that had tofu or something. I would just eat a block of tofu. <laughs> just this right. plain. I'd put some soy sauce. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> but um, you know, if you're in a bigger city, you could find like the vegetarian one restaurant. vegetarian restaurant. Yeah, and and now when I, I'm out playing shows, like one of the highlights of our day is we make reservations at the cool uh, vegan restaurant. And yeah, there's probably two or three now in the same area. Which one should we go to? Right, that's awesome. (laughs) Things have changed for the better. Yeah, at least in that respect. Yeah, yeah, totally. Cool, man. I mean, how do you feel? You like? Did you did you have fun? Yeah. I want to thank you for coming. It's been great, man. I appreciate you talking. I meant to ask. You're from Upton. Did you ever go to shows at the Upton Grange? Grange? Yes, I did. Because, like, I have very fond memories of playing the Grange. I lived through the woods. For, I could walk from my house to the Grange through, the, through a path in the woods. Um, I think I saw a cast iron hike there once, maybe. That makes sense, yeah. Um, about that place. Who else did I see there? I was young. So sometimes, like they wouldn't, they wouldn't even let me in. But uh, oh, right, because uh, they were getting stricter about that sort of shit towards, especially towards the end. Now, I mean, I think at some point the Grange just stopped doing it. Yeah, I mean, because the, way I remember the floor it. fell out. I think. Oh my at god! At one point, because it was upstairs. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. It was the, so the, so the second floor, like the floor gave out, and then they closed it for years. I think it's open now, as an you know, as an actual like hall or whatever. Yeah, but um. Yeah. 
Yeah. The way I remember it, and the way I remember a lot of those hall shows, it's just unsupervised teenage punks. <laughs> yeah. No security, no adults anywhere. And the police station, the, the Upton police station was literally down the hill. Yeah. You know, they, they could walk there <laughs> in a matter of minutes and be like, funny. get the fuck out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I often wondered how that shit yeah. happened. Yeah, every once in a while, a show would get shut down. Yeah. Because it was like, the cops would just show up and shut it down mm-hmm. or like the fire department or something how the hell that shit came off at all ever yeah it's amazing it's like know? I mean with a lot of things it could never happen today no like unsupervised show with like hear, 300 I, kids in here. I talk to people about you know and uh, diminishing clubs and mm-hmm. shit and a lot of people say that you know, they they hear about basement shows. And there's, there's still a basement scene. There is tons of basement shows. Yeah, but like you know the venues, if you want to call it that, um, they have to change. You know. Yeah, I I wish I knew, about them, you know? I wish I knew the fucking the formula. You know, I'm, I think I'm going to start talking to some club people, people who actually book and people who own clubs. Like I'm going to talk to the guy from the Midway and get like a round table of people and see if they have any solutions and see what maybe what they see as the end game for that kind of because I don't know if you tried to book a show in the last two or three years but it's fucking hard I mean I, obviously you, you, you play in bands that can fill bigger bigger venues but even like any small club but even Chrome Over Brass stuff I'm still going through booking agents or uh, local promoters mm-hmm. um, it, it's weird like so I'm definitely like like a DIY punk kind of person, but I don't know. I've never really been like, oh, I have to book my own show. Like I don't even know what to fucking do, you know. <laughs> and especially, I mean, you have kids and you have this, you know, you have your your uh, business, your house, family, whatever, and then also on top of that, you're writing music for it. And yeah. I, it's a lot to do, and then you have to do the booking on top of it. Yeah. But I mean, I, like, I've been trying to get a second Chrome Over Brass album recorded, mm-hmm. and I mean, I've got a kid, I've got two kids now, and uh, the studio just being so busy, um, I mean, that's my practice space, too. Even if I have, like, a day or two between bands, that means I have to, if I want to drum, set up my drum set, mm. play it, and then tear it down again. And in reality, it doesn't take that long to set up and tear down, but it's just like, it's a daunting thing. Yeah, the build up to doing it. Yes. Yeah. And then, and then you, once you get it done, you're like, immediately breaking it down doesn't feel as fulfilling maybe I don't know yeah so I don't know why it's like sad it like is breaking down the drum set like, yeah no. I know I never wanted to you know I, for the longest time I had places to play where I could just leave my shit yeah now the, the most annoying part of being in a band is like coming in and having to set up my crap every time that yeah. was like yeah yeah big I, deal I feel like I'm on the verge of like trying to like get a practice space really? or something yeah just because my studio is soundproof but like for me to go in there at nine o'clock at night ten o'clock at night and start playing drums mm-hmm. like you feel it through the floor it's yeah. not like invasive but you can tell shit's going on mm-hmm. my kids sleep through it 
my wife can, but like she'll know that it's going on and it's around her bedtime and she's like not gonna be into that and like I fully respect that for sure so um if I had a place I could go to because I could leave the house at that time right no problem mm-hmm. so I could like play from like 10 at night till midnight or whatever is there any places on that side of the city I mean I would know? probably do it here or yeah. something but uh it's just like hard for me to pull the trigger and start paying practice space rent when I own a studio. <laughs> uh, you gotta get on in one of these sweet spaces where you have like four or five bands you have to fucking deal with. Yeah. That's another thing. Schedule sucks, but you know. Right, right. Um, I know you know, I'm sure you know people who play here. Who I like, do, yeah. Who would be like, yeah. Yeah, the band I just recorded today, they were loading in here. Oh, is that what? It? Yeah, that's what this guy's <laughs> down there. Cool. Thanks, dude. Yeah, my pleasure. Appreciate it. fun. 